First off this morning, we have to deal with the issue involving uh, the removal of a juror. A few days ago, I received a complaint from a member of the public indicating that a juror had engaged in um, improper conversations with um, parties not associated with the case. Uh, I communicated and provided a copy of the communications to the defense counsel. Uh, after court, we then um, met with the juror on the record and the um, juror denied any denied discussing the case with anyone not on the jury or with anyone on the jury. Uh, she provided uh, information that led us to the court to contact um, the persons that she uh, was suspected of having conversations with concerning the case. Uh, those Individuals were interviewed um, and provided an affidavit regarding the contact that the jury had, juror had with them. Uh, we then also brought those two individuals in and, and had a hearing on, in chambers uh, on the record in the presence of counsel yesterday. Um, in which both of those individuals waffled on the nature and the extent of the contact. Uh, they also provided um, a recorded interview, or the state provided a recorded interview with the jurors, and I reviewed that interview last night. Um, so the juror has had contact or discussions concerning the case with at least three individuals, uh, though it does not appear that the, the conversations were that extensive, it did involve the juror offering her opinion um, regarding evidence received up to that point in the trial that the conversation uh, took place. Uh, and in order to preserve the integrity of the process and the uh, interests of both the state and the defense in a fair trial, that juror will be removed and uh, replaced by another juror. Um, I will make a part of the record uh, under seal because of maintaining the uh, confidentiality of the identity of the jurors, I will place under seal the recorded interview, affidavits received, and we, and both uh, discussions with counsel have taken place uh, on the record, and all of that will be made a part of the record in the case. And we'll bring the juror out to inform her that she'll no longer, her services will no longer be needed. Uh, we will then replace her with an alternate juror. 
Any additional comments by the state or the defense? Mr. State. Your Honor, we uh, do not accept from your ruling. Yes, um, I've sat through everything you sat through, and it's muddled, um, but we would defer to your judgment. However, I think it's important for me to note for the record that the interviews of these two people were done by SLED agents, one of whom was named as a witness in this case, and the other uh, who is, was listed in the notes as being one of the investigating officers. Just to note that, again, SLED has made some bad, another bad judgment in this case. I'm not accepting from your ruling. Yes. I'm just pointing out that this is just a continuum of a calamity of errors. Thank you. And the, the court has not um, had any discussion with any SLED agents concerning this issue. Um, and uh, all the inquiry by the court has been uh, directly with the suspected parties involved and with the juror. Uh, and this is a matter that uh, this long trial with um, the intense publicity is certainly would be certainly difficult for any individual to not have some exposure outside of the courtroom to information concerning the case and to also um, uh, be tempted to engage in discussions uh, with others. But it is improper. It is contrary to uh, my instructions to the jury um, daily, multiple times per day. And um, this juror unfortunately violated that uh, order. So if you will um, bring out juror number 785. Yes. And uh, sir? He's gone. <laughs> uh, let's make sure she brings everything with her. Yeah. Yeah, she will, I'm sure. Tell me. Good morning. Yes, ma'am, up here. In your normal, your normal spots, fine. If you just remain standing for me. Uh, good morning. You doing okay today? All right. Um, I have, as you know, we've had some discussions with you over the past couple of days concerning um, indications of conversations with a uh, few folks not on the jury concerning the, uh, the case and expressing some opinion about the case. Uh, I have reviewed everything, including um, statements given by individuals and recorded interviews and concluded that uh, despite my order to not discuss the case with anyone, uh, that intentionally or unintentionally you've had some discussions with uh, some folks not on the jury, and uh, which was, is going to require me, me to remove you from the jury, um, you have been a, a, a 
by all accounts, great juror and smiled consistently and seemingly um, um, been attentive to the case and performed well. And uh, I'm sure that with all the time you've invested in it, you probably hate not to continue. Or maybe you're ready to go. I don't know. Uh, but um, I certainly want to thank you for, for your service. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you intentionally did anything wrong, uh, but that to, in order to preserve the integrity of the process and in fairness to all the parties involved, uh, we're going to replace you with one of the other jurors. Have you brought everything that you have outside of, you left some stuff in there? What do you have in there? Say it again? A dozen eggs. A dozen eggs. Yeah, one of the other jurors. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other jurors brought in eggs for everybody. Oh, okay. Eggs, my purse, and that water. All right. Well, you're going to leave the eggs? You want to leave the eggs or take the eggs? You're going to take the eggs. <laughs> so, Mr. Bales, can you retrieve from the jury room her dozen eggs, uh, her purse, and what else? and a bottle of water, you can get those things from the jury room. Um, as you know, the uh, ident identity of the jurors are confidential, not known to the public, and the reason you are still where you are is that Cameras are not allowed to videotape the jurors, and, and we have operated by juror numbers throughout the process, and we'll continue to do so, and um, your identity will be kept confidential as far as the court is concerned. And um, we trust that in the event you decide you want to speak publicly about this case, that you wait until after the case is over. Uh, you're not encouraged at all to do so, but you have a right to speak to anyone you want to if you decide to do so. Uh, um, no, I, I have not spoken with her today, but no, this is not related to... Um, I know we also had uh, some conversation was brought up concerning your ex-husband, uh, but that's not a part of this consideration at all. This is to totally independent of any other conversation that that he might have had concerning you. That's not part of the, um, the order of the court. Uh, so they're going to get your things and then uh, once you're removed from the jury, you can't go back in the jury room you just, we'll have to tell them goodbye for you. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Ed, you can go. Thank you.
we get a lot of interesting things, but now a dozen eggs. We'll give them, uh, uh, give her a chance to leave uh, or to take her. She's gone? Yes, sir. Okay, very good. Any, anything else before the jury comes? We picked an alternate. Oh, right, absolutely. When they come out, we'll need to uh, select an alternate. And the clerk has, you have the remaining alternates in a box. Any objection to the a blind selection of that alternate out of the box? Nothing for the defense, Your Honor. Five four will become part of the panel of the deliberating panel at this point. Two five four. Yes, sir, Mr. Griffin. Your Honor, before the jury comes in, early in my closing argument, we have a a blow up of the photos of Maggie Paul at the crime scene. I'm going to hold it up. So that the jury could see, the the uh, audience cannot see. But I'm just notifying Court TV that please don't display this blow up um, during the proceedings. Thank you. Yes. Oh, sure. I'm, I apologize. I
You may bring the jury. Morning. Yes, sir. Thank you. And good morning one more time. Uh, day number 28. Uh, welcome back. Uh, juror number 254. Uh, you are now part of the first 12 jurors. We have 13. You are part of the first 12 uh, of the panel at this time. And the continuing with closing arguments is the the defense's turn. Mr. Griffin. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. We're at the stage of the case that's called closing arguments. I don't know why they call it argument. Uh, I'm not here to have an argument with you in any form or fashion. Uh, what I'm here to do today, this morning, is to review the evidence with you um, that you've heard in the courtroom over the last six weeks. And in reviewing this evidence, my goal is to address questions that you may have about, about what you've heard. And the jury system that we have, frankly, is, is the greatest criminal justice system in the world because it's the only system, jury system, that, that a criminal defendant's fate is put in the hands of his or her peers. In this country, uh, we don't leave the decision of guilt or innocence up to governor, to the attorney general, to the prosecutors, uh, to the presiding judge. You, ladies and gentlemen, make that decision. And as perfect as our jury system is, there's one thing that I wish it provided, an interchange during the course of the trial between us. You're all sitting there and listening to what we say, and we don't know what questions you have and what you won't answer. By the same token, um, you know, we may have questions of, of you that, that we can't ask. Here's my opportunity to try to answer the questions that I think you have. Um, there may be some things that I go over that, that you've already decided, and I'm wasting your time, and if I do that, I apologize. I truly do, I, but I don't, this case is so important, I don't want to leave anything out that one of you may have a question about. I think I can probably speak to for everybody in this courtroom um, 
that there's one thing that we on this side have no question about. It's that y'all have been ideal jurors. We've been here six weeks, and each of you have come every day on time, and you've been very attentive, and it has not gone unnoticed. And we do appreciate you for your service. We know what a sacrifice it is being away from your home, your work, your family, your personal obligations. Maybe some of you miss vacations. Um, but you've been here in a three-week trial, and here we are at the end of six weeks. And I want to thank you personally. I want to thank you on behalf of Mr. Harpootlian, Mr. Barber, Ms. Fox, and especially on behalf of Alec Murdoch. In his opening statement, Mr. Harpootlian explained to you that the law governing your service requires each of you to engage in an unnatural task. In every criminal case, jurors are required to begin the process by presuming the defendant innocent. In this case, you were required under your solemn oath, oath as we began to presume Alec Murdoch innocent of these charges. And frankly, as he explained, that's not natural. When you hear on the news that, that a crime has occurred and an arrest has been made, you, you feel a little bit relieved. Thank God they caught him. And, and frankly, I would not be surprised if some amongst you, when you read in the paper that Alec Murdoch was charged with the murder of wife and son, that you thought, oh good, they got him. But those opinions, and each of you, when you filled out your questionnaire, <coughs> agreed and affirmed that you would leave those at the door of the courthouse and that you would decide this case solely on the evidence. And that's what the law requires. And when, and when we begin, the law also requires you to uh, presume him innocent of these charges. Now, I've been doing this a long, long time, and I'm, up until the advent of instant replay in sports, it's been very difficult to, to explain just how to do that to jurors, how jurors can do this, apply this presumption of innocence. And, and if you're not as interested in sports, I apologize for this <coughs> analogy, but, but the analogy is the instant replay, whether you're a Clemson fan or a Georgia fan, that <coughs> on a Saturday afternoon there's a play called on the field and then it's, it's reviewed. And under the rules, the call on the field stands unless there's visual incontrovertible evidence that the call on the field was wrong. We see that every weekend in, on sports. Here, the call on the field is that Alec Murdoch is innocent, innocent of these charges. That's what the law requires. And that unless and until the state proves his guilt to each one of you individually, voting individually, proves his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then that presumption of innocence stays with him. You're not being tasked here to give your opinion in this trial. You're being tasked to apply the Constitution, the bedrock principles that protect us all from a government. And those bedrock principles are, first, you, you get tried by a jury of your peers. Second, that the jury of your peers begin with presuming you innocent. And third, that you will remain innocent until the government, if they can, proves to you individually, in your mind, that the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the judge will give you jury instructions on what that means, beyond a reasonable doubt. 
But the definition has been defined that reasonable doubt is doubt that would cause a reasonable person to hesitate when making an important decision in their personal affairs, such as to buy a house, get married, um, any consequential decision. And you will be making, you will be making, when you get this case, probably later this afternoon, uh, you'll be making one of the most consequential decisions that you will have ever made in your life, I suspect. I don't know all of your backgrounds, but it will be a very consequential decision. And if the proof that the state has put before you causes you to hesitate, when you go to fill out that vote as, as you're deliberating in your jury room, each of you will have a vote. And you will have the right to vote guilty or not guilty. And each of you will write it down. And if there's any reasonable cause for you to hesitate to write guilty, then the law requires you to write not guilty. The, this burden of proof that we have, many of you may have had experience with civil cases. And in civil cases, the burden of proof is much lower and is called by preponderance of the evidence. And you may have seen lawyers or judges or watched on TV as, as, they, as they give a visual image of Lady Justice, who's blind and who's blindfolded, so she doesn't, does not bias for one side or the other, and, and there's scales on Lady Justice. And, and those scales are the scales of justice. And in a civil case, if one party proves their case by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning ever so slightly tilt those scales in their favor, then they're entitled to the verdict. There's another heightened level of burden of proof in a civil case called by clear and convincing evidence. And, and the law requires things like to prove fraud, fraud or <clears throat> some intentional acts. You have to prove by clear and convincing evidence. And that's an intermediate level of proof. And so it's not just tilt the scales ever so slightly in the favor of the, of, of the party that prevails, but, but you have to get sort of three quarters of the way there. But now proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest standard of proof the law recognizes. And it is, you have to tilt the scales all the way to one side in order for the state to meet their burden. Now, a little bit about the verdict. You will have an option of guilty or not guilty. My, my friend Dick Harputlian over here, is a, he travels a lot. He's been to a lot of countries and he frequently, um, he recently returned from Scotland where he attended a, a jury trial in Scotland. And it, he tells me it's much like this, except the lawyers wear a wig and I might benefit from something like that. but. The, um, but in Scotland, it runs about the same until it gets time to the verdict in the criminal case. And the jury in Scotland, where we derive our laws from, and it, they are given three options. One option is guilty. Second option is not guilty. And the third option is not proven. Not proven. Now here in America, we have combined the verdict of innocent and not proven into one of not guilty. And so when you, when you go to render your verdict, 
If it's a verdict of not guilty, it's either you concluded that the defendant is innocent of the charges or that the government has not met their burden of proof, their heavy burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, and one of the reasons that defendants are presumed innocent and the government has such a high burden is because in criminal cases, the defendant really doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the lawful authority to execute search warrants, subpoena documents, um, to prove his or her innocence. And so a defendant cannot secure a crime scene, cannot lift a crime scene for fingerprints, shoe wear impressions, cannot secure telephones and get electronic data in the course of an investigation. So the defendant is limited on what they can do. In this case, on, not, on June 7, 2021, Alec Murdoch called 911 and Officer Deputy Green and then followed by other deputies rolled up on the scene and he is standing on his property. His wife and son lie dead in a pool of blood each. He's within yards of him, and he had just put a shotgun down. He had just put a shotgun down. And what would that look like? 90 out of 100 cases when an officer rolls up, it would look like the person who had the shotgun and two dead bodies may have done it, probably have done it. Certainly is someone who should be strongly considered. And all the officers in this case told you that. Deputy Rutland said, yeah, Alec Murdoch was a suspect, but there are a lot of suspects out there. Um, everybody was a suspect, fair enough. Agent Owen says, well, you know, we have a circle, investigative circle, and, and it starts with immediate family members, particularly if they found the, the deceased, the victims. So he's in the circle by virtue of calling 911, and that's fair enough. But what doesn't strike us as, as fair is that the next morning on June the 8th, after the gruesome murders of Maggie and Paul, this is what is issued a joint press release, Collin County and SLED, that says, at this time, there's no danger to the public. At this time, there's no danger to the public. We have two people who have been executed within, y'all are out there, I don't know, is it 100 yards, 200 yards from Moselle Road? They've been slaughtered. And at this time, there's no danger to the public. Does that tell you that on June 8th, law enforcement had decided it had to be Alec Murdoch? It's a fair question for you to ask yourselves. It's a question that's not been fairly answered in this trial. But we know from June 7th to June 8th, Alec is a suspect, and he's in the circle. And from that day forward, he is at 
the mercy. He is at the mercy of the ability of sled to exclude him from that circle. They have the ability to do the forensic work. They have the ability to interview witnesses. And they have the ability to gather electronic data. And we believe that we've shown conclusively that SLED failed miserably in investigating this case. And had they done a competent job, that Alec would have been excluded from that circle year ago, two years ago, but he would have been excluded. What, what did you hear from the witness stand? You heard from Chief Barry McCroy. I didn't know Chief McCroy until I got involved in this case, um, but his reputation is, is outstanding and he's consummate professional. And, and he explained that when he got there, he was concerned that, that cars would be pulling up and there were some tire tracks that, that were not being protected and that they could have evidentiary value. And then, um, and then you heard from Mark Ball, who had a conversation with Chief, I mean, excuse me, um, Sheriff Hill, who's another fine public servant here. And, and, he, and he also agreed, we've got to stop cars from coming in here to preserve these tire impressions. And it was not done. It was not done. Uh, Captain Chapman from the Collison County Sheriff's Office, he testified about seeing other sets of uh, tire tracks. Um, as you had came in off Moselle Road, you probably saw where Deputy Green's vehicle had stopped right at the kennels. But then on the other side, where you saw that Alec was, was parked and pacing on some of these videos, that's where, um, that's where Captain Chapman had talked about seeing tire tracks. And he tried to track them. Slab was coming on, and then it was, like, it, it was like a trail to nowhere. It was a trail to nowhere. Uh, Deputy Rutland talked about seeing hair, hair in Maggie's hands, you'll recall. You didn't hear anything about the hair in Maggie's hands from that moment forward. Was it tested? Was it sent off for analysis? There was no evidence of what if anything happened to the hair in Maggie's hands. Was it as a result of a, of a struggle with her assailant? Was it, was it her own hair? I mean, we don't know the answer to that. We know they failed to take fingerprints from the feed room, and they should have. They failed to properly take footwear impressions from the feed room, or at the apron right outside the feed room. And I think that's, that's I mean, I, I don't think that's uncontradicted. The um, Agent Worley, who, um, doing the best she can, um, did not go there to document footwear impressions. Did not do that. You heard from our expert, Mr. Zerti, what is required. And I believe Dr. Kinsey also agreed it was not done. I know Mr. Palmback did. And, and, and both, now I'll, I'll get to the shot angles in a little bit, but both Dr. Kinsey and Mr. Palmback have this murderer for Paul standing on the concrete 
standing on the concrete. Whether one foot's in, one foot's out, both feet are in, but there should have been footwear impressions. But we'll never know because it was not preserved. It was not taken. The thing that has baffled us, has completely baffled us, is why did they never take DNA samples off of Maggie's clothes, her dress? Why did they never take DNA samples off Paul's clothes? They never did. They never did. And we asked their investigators, why didn't you? Well, that's somebody else's job. That's somebody else's job. It was never done. But you know who the, who's, whose clothing they, they took DNA off of extensively? Alec. And, and you, you heard um, Agent Zapata talk about all the different uh, grids on the, her shirt where DNA was, was samples were taken. Was Alec assaulted on June the 7th? No, he wasn't assaulted. Was Alec wrestling with the assailant on June the 7th? There's no evidence of that. So why are they taking DNA evidence off Alec's clothing in June of 2021? And there's only one reason. And it goes back to this right here. There was only one reason. Only one reason is that they had decided that unless we find somebody else, it's going to be Alec. Unless we find somebody else, it's going to be Alec. The um, and I'll, I'll get I'll get in more detail about Maggie's phone and and. Maggie's phone was not secured properly. Maggie's phone um, was, uh, well, let me just go right into it. Um, Maggie's phone was found on the side of the road uh, in the morning um, or early afternoon on June the 8th. Whoever killed her threw that phone on the side of the road, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, Alec, from the get-go, has said, you get Maggie's phone, you get my phone, or you get my own star data, and you will not see my car traveling down the road with Maggie's phone. Because it did not happen. It could not happen. Thank you, Owen. Have you gotten it yet? No, no, we've not. We, we sent the black box from on the, uh, on the Chevy to the to the FBI. It was a new model. Turns out the data's encrypted, and so we haven't got it yet. Well, what about General Motors? I mean, I'll, I'll do what I have to do, whatever I can do. And um, so, well, you know, we're looking into it. We're looking into it. Well, what we learned during this trial is, sure, SLED sent a subpoena via fax machine to somebody in Detroit, I believe, and whoever got it in Detroit whether there was a number off, I, I have no idea what the reason was. But we do know the initial response was, we don't have anything. We, we don't have any OnStar data that you're looking for. There's no, there's no indication that SLED followed up with a phone call. 
There's no indication SLED followed up with a letter. There's no indication SLED did anything other than put it in a file, put the response in a file. And that was it. That was it, ladies and gentlemen, until somebody watching this trial somewhere contacted somebody at General Motors and said, why don't you guys cooperate with the FBI and SLED on this investigation? What are you talking about? <coughs> so Friday, you know, during the sometime the last six weeks, lo and behold, here comes all the OnStar data that you got to see. <clears throat> and that would be great. That would be great. But for the fact that when they seized Maggie's phone, it had, uh, they put it in airplane mode. They knew how to put it in airplane mode. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Let me get water. I apologize. Oh, there's pollen. Something else. The, um, <clears throat> they put it in airplane mode, but what, you, what you'll see, I got a photograph, is the location services were still on, meaning still pinging off GPS satellites. And, <clears throat> and the, the phones don't hold that much memory. They hold a lot of data, as we have learned, but they don't hold that much memory. And it writes over itself. And for, for GPS location services, the, the, the ping points that we see from Paul's phone on, on all that data, <clears throat> that would have been on Maggie's phone for the 7th. But for the fact that it wasn't, um, it wasn't extracted until sometime in like, June 16th. I think that's the date, but, but if I'm wrong, I apologize. But it's around the middle of June. And that ping information that we see on Paul's phone, for Maggie's phone, it goes back to like June the 9th. Well, a lot of good that does. A lot of good that does. We don't have it. We would have had it had, had they extracted it earlier. And the agent Dove says we didn't have an updated, upgraded software that would, would read it. Took us a while to get it. I don't know why it took them a while to get it. There's really no explanation about that. But you heard about Faraday bags. Put it in a Faraday bag. So it's not pinging against satellites, not overriding. They didn't do that. And it's lost. Had they done it, I hope we wouldn't be here. I hope, because I know it would say, because we have enough evidence in the record. And we have to go around our elbow to get to our thumb to get there. But there is sufficient evidence in the record that shows Alec Murdoch was not driving down the road, Moselle Road, with Maggie's phone in the car <clears throat> and tossed it at whatever time. When he, he went by at 9.08. I don't know what time they, they think it's tossed. But that would have gotten him out of the circle. I would hope, but probably not. Because they've been so focused on him. Now... As I mentioned, Alec asked multiple times. I think the testimony was five times. <clears throat> Agent Owen, Agent Owen, you know, if you get this data, it will show it wasn't there. And and you know, we were we didn't learn why they didn't get it off Alec's phone until <clears throat> very recently. Because on June, you'll remember on June 10th, he gave Sled his phone. Yeah, you can copy it. Please copy it, because it'll show it'll show that. I wasn't driving. Now, my phone was not with Maggie's phone at any point in time, going down the road, or, and it, I did what I said I did. 
Well, they did extract it, but what we've learned, the extraction was a superficial extraction. Not because Alec requested it, that's just what they did. Said a logical surface extraction. So they didn't go in and pull out any GPS pinging data like you see on Paul's phone. They didn't get off Alex. Now, if Alex had not made those requests to Owen, and they are disputing that, it's one thing you can be 100% sure of, is they would have called Detective Owen up here on the witness stand during their <coughs> rebuttal case to say, no, he lied. He didn't ask that of me. I mean, they, they got Sheriff Smalls in here to say, I didn't give him permission to put a blue light in his car. They came and challenged whether he had authority from the sheriff or maybe a deputy sheriff to put a blue light in his car. But they didn't contradict anything you said about, I've been asking, I've been asking, I've been asking for this data that would get me out of circle. And now we know why it took so long to get the stuff from get the stuff from his car. It's because General Motor I mean it's because the FBI wouldn't go to General Motors on this this event data. They were the FBI was up there and they bought a suburban, they're riding it around and they're reverse engineering all all these systems to try to come up reports. And then they and then they come in here and tell you, well it's not complete, some it's inaccurate, but this is what we got. And during the middle of all that, that's when, lo and behold, we get on start. Thankfully, we did. Thankfully, we did. So then we roll into Labor Day weekend of 2021. Where Alex, long-time drug problem, his financial issues, misconduct were exposed. And that made him an easy, easy, easy target for Slick. And I hate to say this, but the evidence is crystal clear. From that moment, <coughs> they started fabricating evidence against Alec. Well, Mr. Griffin, that's, that's an awful, awful charge. Don't, don't all lawyers accuse law enforcement of fabricating evidence and you know I can tell you this guy right here was a federal prosecutor was a state prosecutor and some of my best friends are in law enforcement and I don't make that claim lightly here what you have heard is they came up with a report that says Alex t-shirt had high velocity blood spatter on high velocity blood spatter what's that that means you're within feet of a shooting, and they, they didn't just say any shooting, said in their report, it says, as a result of Paul's murder, high velocity blood spatter on a shirt as a result of Paul's murder. That was number one. Well, let's stick with number one. Why, why do I say that, that it's fabricated? Well, you heard Agent Zapata said, we did hematrace confirmatory blood tests on that shirt. That means there was two types of tests. There's a presumptive test, which is what they use a product called LCV that makes it turn purple where it might be blood. But it turns purple on other agents as well, including bleach, you heard. And you also heard that the shirt 
came out of the bag wet and it smelled like detergent. Anyway, they, they spray it, it turns purple in places. So they think, well, that must be blood. Next thing they do at the sled lab is they do a confirmatory test to see if it's blood. Zero for 74, not blood, not blood. That didn't stop, that didn't stop sled from going out and pursuing um, with vengeance this report. They didn't give the no blood test result to the guy in Oklahoma and, and, and when it surfaced, when it surfaced, they had a problem on their hands. And they were pushing it up until this trial. And, and you heard the testimony from the stand. That they went from Mr. Bloody Shirt leading up to this trial to Mr. Clean during this trial. And they asked him, and they raised issues during the trial with Blanca. Where were his clothes? No one's asking about the man's clothes that he had on the Snapchat video back in, you know, at 7 o'clock with his son until November or so, I think is what she said. I mean, the issue of changing clothes, um, it was late to the dance because when they went to, as you heard, when they went to the Colony Grant, County grand jury to get an indictment that you're going to be deliberating on? They told that grand jury they had an expert report that says high velocity blood spatter. And I asked Agent Owen, I said, when you went to the grand jury and your guy gave you the report, how'd you not know, Chief Investigator, how'd you not know that there's this hematrace test that says there's no blood? Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the email. I say it in somewhat jest, but you know, did the dog eat his email? I mean, how's a lead investigator in the case not get the lab report that says there's no blood on the shirt? Now, ultimately, it was produced to us, and we were raising cane about it and saying, "How can you say this on one hand and that on the other hand?" And and here we are with a Mr. Clean theory that he washed off after brutally murder, murdering Maggie and Paul. He takes a hose and washes himself off and gets in a golf cart, butt naked, I guess, and drives to the house. So that's the blood spatter fabrication. The other is, um, is this blue raincoat with GSR. And, and do you remember that testimony? Um, Shelly Smith, who worked for Ms. Libby and Mr. Randolph, had told SLED after September, after Alec's problems had been exposed, after she had a conversation with an um, Allendale police officer following an accident investigation in which she was in an accident, um, that on the morning, she said in here, on, <clears throat> as she told you, on Wednesday after um, Mr. Randolph's funeral, and that turns out to be, I think, June 16th, that Alec shows up at the house at Almeda at like 6.30 in the morning, knocking, trying to get in, and he has a blue tarp. And in this blue tarp, he, um, she lets him in, he goes upstairs with this blue tarp. He comes back downstairs, he lays this blue tarp out on uh, Ms. Libby's retirement rocking chair, 
for um, in the living room, and then he leaves. And then she leaves to go to her day job. And and when she left, I believe Tark was laying out um, on Ms. Libby's rocking chair. That, I mean, that was her testimony. And so Sled gets that, gets a search warrant, goes to Almeida, and they seize a blue rain jacket. They seize a blue rain jacket. And when they do, um, they take that blue rain jacket and they show it to just about every family member. Let me get it right quick. So they can think of, and it's um, it's defendant's 87, Doug, if you can pull it up. Um, but they, they show this blue rain jacket to all, as many family members as, as they can get in contact with. And, and the rain jacket is, um, and no one recognizes it. No one sees it. No, no, one, no one said Alex ever worn it. No one said Paul's ever worn it. No one said Buster's ever worn it. No one said Maggie's ever worn it. Have not seen this blue rain jacket. Has not seen this blue rain jacket. One more thing about this blue rain jacket. When they did the search at Almeida, when they did the search at Almeida, John Marvin was there. And, and John Marvin asked him, what, did you find anything? And they said, well, we found a blue rain jacket back on the property. Back on the property. Back on the property. And he said, well, you know, my dad drives a buggy around, and maybe it fell off the back of his buggy. <coughs> Clearly, John Marvin was understanding that it was back on the property. And then they asked him to come look at the blue rain jacket, and he was told it was found in the closet. He was told it was found in the closet. And he said, that didn't sound right. And they never clarified it. Now here's a picture. I'm not even going to put it up, but I'm going to... 411 is, is a picture of this closet. And you can see uh, the blue rain jacket that's just sort of folded up and, and stuffed down here at the, at the bottom right. That's the blue rain jacket. And, um, and apparently right before this trial, they showed Shelly Smith this picture and says, does that look like the blue tarp you saw? She goes, well, yeah, so, yeah, sure, it looks like it. They never showed her this. They never showed her this. And she said, this, well, I'll take this, page 87 is on the screen. She'd never seen this. Never seen this. But they did GSR testing on this. He says, whew, that's a hot, it's hot. A lot of GSR on that. A lot of GSR on that. Manufactured evidence, ladies and gentlemen. And then, um, and then, then there's this issue of misrepresenting what are the type ammunition found in the shotguns at the residence at, um, at Moselle. Paul was murdered with a First shot was a buckshot. Went through his chest. He was he was turned this way. Went in here, and then out under his arm, and that was buckshot. The second shot was into the head. Either depending what expert and what pathologist, it's either this way or this way, but into the head, and and that was steel uh, uh, duck um, shot. I learned that. You can't shoot ducks with anything but steel pellets because 
They don't want lead in the water. So you've got to have steel propellants. And then A.J. Owen testified, admitted regret, begrudgingly that he had testified to the grand jury that there were four weapons found up on the property in the gun room, 12 gauges that were loaded, or I'm not saying 12 gauges, I'm sorry, four shotguns that were loaded with buckshot and birdshot. There's four other ones. So that matches. Well, guess what? Totally not true. That was totally not true. And he admitted on the stand it was not true. He admitted telling Alec during the interview, and he said, well, I can do trickery. I can do, and we're going to see that shortly. But he, and then I said, are you trying to trick the grand jury? No, I, I didn't say that. Well, we walked through it, and he did say it. And, and, and he didn't remember it, and you'll remember the testimony. And I said, well, <clears throat> people make mistakes, don't you? Yeah, that was a mistake. And it's okay to make mistakes, right? Yeah. And, and you can make mistakes about time. Well, that's the most common thing people make mistakes about. It's not all right for Alec Murdoch, who's in the center of the circle, who's not all right for him to make mistakes about time. It is not all right according to the same investigator who says, it's okay, happens all the time. But here we go, and then Eureka. Eureka. They finally get into Paul's phone in April of 2022, and they see, they see Alec, well, they don't see Alec, they see Cash the dog, and they see Paul's feet walking around, and, and they hear voices in the background. One of them sounds like Alec. And... And, and, and off they go. They go off and um, get an indictment um, from the Cullinan County Grand Jury, relying upon high-velocity blood spatter, relying upon four guns having the same load, and relying upon a, a, a rain jacket that's got GSR on it, and Alex lying about being down at the kennel. Now we know after we've been here six weeks, of those four things. Bixby voice privacy contacts have been updated. To continue, review the updated items on your screen. What we know is um, three out of those four things that, that was presented to the Collin County Grand Jury that, that you're going to be deliberating on for the, the indictments that return aren't true. No blood spatter, no, no GSR rain jacket that, that's ever been connected to Alex whatsoever, and there's no loaded gun. So we're left with the lie. We are left with the lie. Now, Alex lied about being down in the kennels. And Almeida. And, and why did he lie? And that is certainly a fair question. And that's, and, and, and frankly, I probably wouldn't be sitting over there right now if he, he had not lied. But he did lie. And he told you he lied. And he told you why he lied. He said he lied because, I mean, I, I'll tell you, he lied because that's what addicts do. Addicts lie. Um, 
he lied because he had a closet full of skeletons, that he didn't want any more, any more uh, scrutiny on him, which is the most ironic thing in the world because depending on which day of the week, their theory is that he slaughtered his wife and son to distract from an impending financial investigation. But he puts himself in the middle of a murder investigation, and he puts himself in the spotlight of a media firestorm. That's their motive evidence. We'll get to that. But he lied. He lied because of his drug paranoia kicked in, and he was clearly in the throes of addiction. He lied for all those reasons. But what he didn't lie, what he didn't lie for is because he was covering up the fact that he killed Maggie and Paul. That is not the reason he did it. Doug, will you play the dog kennel video, please? We're going, I'm going to play the dog kennel video. Just please listen to the voice. Four minutes later, the state would have you to believe that Alec Murdoch up and blew his son's brains out of his head and murders his wife. After having that conversation about Bubba having a chicken or a guinea, four minutes later, their case wants you to believe that this is a family down at the dog kennels doing what families do. They're checking on a dog, tail, Bubba's out running around, and they're saying, Bubba, got a chicken. Now, why would Alec not want law enforcement to hear that? I mean, there's nothing on that tape, there's nothing on that tape that indicates there's any strife, any conflict, any anger, any planning, any anybody being afraid, anybody running, anybody scurrying, nothing. Maggie, Paul, and Alec down at the kennel. That's it. And their timeline is based on the fact that this automated thing kind of messed me up, but point I was going to open this up and say, you know, under, under their theory, if your phone's not moving for some period of time, you're dead right then. You, you, could, you could be run over in the traffic two hours later, but if you're not answering a text two minutes after you receive it, you're dead at that point. And that's their case. That is their case on time of death. 
is phone stop moving, you're dead. You've heard testimony from a lot of witnesses. I would say practically every witness who took the stand, who actually knew Alec and Maggie and Paul and Buster, testified under oath how much Alec adored Maggie, how was, she was his all. Some people describe Paul as Alec's best friend. His relationship with them was awesome. And um, I mean, that was unanimous. Unanimous. I, I want to just play briefly a clip from Blanca testimony about Alex's relationship with Maggie. You've also, I think in multiple interviews with um, Swad and other folks, described, I think the words were um, Maggie. Please continue that. Oh, isn't that, isn't that what you told us, Slay? Yes, sir. What does that mean, Maggie was his all? He, he adored her. He, he loved her. He adored her. Worshipped her. I mean, just treated her as somebody he adored, correct? Exactly, yes, sir. Now, this was her testimony from the witness stand. Um, and then, in, in every trial, there's, there's, you hope, you find, you know, some very authentic witness, part of the fabric of America that comes in this courtroom. And we had it in this case, and it's Dale Davis. And I want you to remember what Dale testified about Alex's relationship with his family. We played Dale Davis's. Me? When you use the phrase lovey-dovey about Alec and Maggie, what does that mean? It means they loved each other. What, in, in, in your presence, you just, I mean, you described that, them as being lovey-dovey, didn't you? Yes. And, and tell the jury what you meant by that. Oh, every time I always say them, they, you know, they, I've never seen that man even raise his voice at his wife or kids. Uh, I'm so, oh, or his wife. I've never seen him even, none of them argue. But he always, anything she wanted or the boys wanted, he would try to get it. And how would you, what was your observation about the relationship with Paul? They like to hunt and fish together. I mean, they always, they drink beer together. Okay. Um, that was Dell Davis. Which, which brings us to the question, why? Why, why, why would Alec Murdoch on June 7th execute his son Paul and his wife Maggie, who he adored and loved? 
Why? The state's theory is that, he ha that it was a storm a-coming, clouds were arising, and that his financial house of cards is about to collapse, and he's about to be exposed. And because of that, he does what every rational person would do, go kill your wife and son. That is their theory of motive. That is their theory of motive. That it, oh, and it worked too, by the way. Because he killed his wife and son, guess what? Genie Seconder quit uh, asking questions for a few weeks. Oh, in the boating case, ooh, that won't be worth anything now that his wife and son have been murdered because he's sympathetic. <coughs> have you heard such? One thing Mr. Waters and I agree on is the best thing about jurors is you bring your common sense in here and you use your common sense. And that's what it's all about. That's what your collective wisdom. And just collectively think, individually think, what kind of sense does that make? Alex, his financial house is a wreck. He's stealing money from clients. He, he's got to produce a financial statement, maybe, in a hearing coming up. And his dad goes back in the hospital that day. His dad goes back in the hospital that day, and he ultimately dies a few days later. Okay. So I get a call. Jeannie comes in. My dad's going to the hospital. Paul's coming home. That would be a good time to kill Paul, wouldn't it? That is their theory of the case. If you don't accept that, beyond a reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen, I submit the verdict has to be not guilty. Because there's no reason for him to do it. No reason whatsoever. Now, you've heard a lot of testimony about these financial crimes, misdeeds, and, and he told you he did it. He told you he did it to support a very expensive drug habit, and none of that's an excuse, but he is an addict. And addiction is real, and addicts lie, addicts cheat, addicts, addicts steal to keep getting their drug. The evidence was permitted in this case for you to hear solely to consider did he murder his wife and son because he had this storm a-coming. That he's going to be exposed. Is that why he murdered? That's what they say. That's why he murdered. And that's why you're allowed to consider it. Now, Judge Newman and his jury instructions will tell you that's all you can consider it for. You can't consider it by saying, man, I, I never knew he could do that. So if he could do that, he must be able to do the most heinous crimes in the world. Kill his wife and son, execute him style. That's a no-no use of that evidence. The only permissible use of the evidence is, is that sufficient provocation, motive for him to kill his wife and son? Is it sufficient motive, not provocation? And, and, and the evidence in the case is that there was no impending financial doom on June 7th. June 7th was a day which, frankly, was no different than any other day in the frenetic, frenetic lifestyle of Alec Murdoch. 
he had so many balls in the air. And, and, and he even, um, I forgot his paralegal's name, and I apologize to her, I think Christy. Uh, she said he would come in like a Tasmanian devil. I mean, he was frenetic. Uh, and and they, they were on to this $792,000 fee in the uh, Ferris case. Um, and they were asking questions, questions at Chris Wilson's office. The, um, but the reason they were concerned, they weren't concerned that he was stealing money, they were concerned that he was sheltering money, trying to hide it from, from the, being disclosed in the voting litigation, which he was a defendant. And they didn't want any part of that. And, and that situation with the voting, I mean, excuse me, with the Ferris fee, as Ms. Seconder, Jimmy Seconder said, that was a one-off. That was completely on its own, different type conduct than all the other stuff that you, you heard about. That was a one-off. And, and what happened on June 7th? She says, I'm in his office, and he gets a phone call that his dad's put back in the hospital. And she, and she thinks that he told her it was terminal. He may have, I don't know, you know, but his dad is put back in the hospital. He wasn't terminal that day, but the next day he got the terminal diagnosis. The, um, any event, she takes off her CFO hat and puts on her mama bear hat and hugs him and, and a friend hat. and and and. You know, their theory is he slaughters Maggie and Paul to buy time from her investigation. That is it. That is their theory. That is their theory. And it's totally fabricated. They've got no evidence of that. There's no evidence that Maggie was on to his financial misdeeds. There's no evidence that she was about to blow the whistle on him. There's no evidence that she was, that he had a $20 million life insurance policy on her and that if he, if he, uh, murdered her that, that he could he could get out of financial bond. None of that. None of that. And I asked Ms. Seconder, how, how long of a delay did that buy out? Well, month maybe? A month? A month? That's their theory. That's what their case is built upon. And then this motions hearing is um, there was a motions hearing scheduled for Thursday. It had previously been scheduled two other times. And it was continued at the last minute on the other occasions because two of the lawyers had cancer and we were receiving treatments. But it wasn't sure it was going to be continued previously. Did he go murder anybody, you know, to get out from under those prior hearings? No. This had nothing to do with it. And, you know, so they, they brought the plaintiff's lawyer in. He was, he's an excellent lawyer, and he's, you know, like any plaintiff's lawyer. He's, I'm going to clean his clock. I'm going to take everything he's got. That's what they all say. So then we had to bring the defense lawyer in to say, that was a negligent parenting case, and it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. I mean, folks, that's what, that's what we are in a murder case, and that's what we're having to deal with because that is their theory of motive. Even if, it's, even if the financial day of reckoning was impending, if it was right there, Alec would not have killed 
the people he loved the most in the world. There's no evidence that he would do that. We do have evidence of what he would do and did do. And if you'll pull up Defense Exhibit 125, which is in evidence. On September 2nd, 3rd, 4th, I forget the date. This is the Labor Day weekend. He gets his drug dealer, Curtis Eddie Smith, to shoot him in the head because he couldn't go on because it was all going to come crashing down and he had a big life insurance policy. So when Alex is at financial collapse, he doesn't go kill somebody else. He tries to end it himself. This is a natural response. You don't want anybody to do it. But this, people kill themselves from being exposed. They don't kill their wife they adore, son, the apple of his eye, as some people have said. That's not, that's not. That is, I don't have the adjective for that. That is so outlandish. I don't, I, I don't have a word for it. Totally illogical, irrational, and insane. Those are the words I wrote down. For someone to kill their loved ones when their criminal conduct is being exposed. So, you can take that now. Yeah, thank you, Doug. Um, so um, yesterday we heard a lot from Mr. Waters, and I've been in Mr. Waters' position. As I explained, I was a federal prosecutor for a number of years. I've been a state prosecutor part-time mostly, and, I, um, and, and I've, I've done his job. It's a very rewarding job, and I, and I hold him and I hold his office um, in very high esteem. But there are just sometimes folks just get caught up in a case they get a desire to win. They get so intoxicated by the attention that's brought on by the case that it, you know, they start sort of a win-at-all-cost approach. And I'm going to go through some things that, that Mr. Waters um, stated to you that just aren't facts and, and aren't supported by the facts and the evidence that you heard. And before I do that, I, I want to give you a cautionary statement. We lawyers aren't witnesses. I didn't take an oath to stand up here and, and talk to you. Um, I, I have ethical obligations about what I can say and limitations on the, under the rules, but I'm not a witness. I'm here to talk to you about the evidence. And the same applies to Mr. Waters. Um, you decide what the evidence is. You decide. And further, we're going to take a short break for about 10 minutes. Please do not discuss the case.
May bring them in. Thank you. You may continue. Yesterday in uh, Mr. Waters' uh, closing argument, he said that the evidence established that Paul and Maggie were murdered with family guns. That perhaps is his view of the evidence, but that's not a fact. In fact, the state's ballistic expert testified that the 12-gauge shot shells that you found in the feed room um, were fired by the same shotgun, that the shot shells, the things that rolled under the door, were fired by the same gun. That's all he testified to as the shotgun. Now, they have put a lot of guns in evidence here that have nothing to do with the crime. So we don't know what shotgun was used. It could have been a shotgun bought at Walmart that afternoon. It could have been a 20-year-old shotgun. But all the evidence, ballistic evidence, is shot shells were fired by the same gun. And that's, I don't know that you really need an expert for that, but that, that's what the testimony was on the shotgun. With regard to the 300 blackout, you, you'll recall that, that, the, uh, that this guy, Paul Greer, uh, testified that the cartridges found at the, at the crime scene, and Maggie was shot with a 300 blackout, that those, that, that the um, tool marks, it's called tool marks, that the extractor and ejector marks from the cartridges found at the crime scene matched uh, extractor and ejector tool marks on some cartridges found at the house and some found at the driving range, excuse me, shooting range. And uh, but what he didn't say was that where the firing pin breaches, that is one of the most reliable 
indications. It did not match. No match. And he also did not, did not compare projectiles. There was, was, there was a projectile found. When I say projectile, that's the bullet. That's the bullet thing. It goes, it went into Maggie's body and, and, and broke up. But one went into the, the dog house and was found in the dog bed. And so they have that. And, and what they did not do is take that projectile and dig projectiles out of the berm where the shooting range was and compare it to see if they match. And that's the most reliable way to do it. Now, you know, in, in David Owen's notes, he, sa he said that the ballistic expert can't be 100% sure until you have the gun. And, and, and you heard you know, my cross-examination of, of uh, Agent Greer, and, and, and this uh, tool mark exam ballistic examination is somewhat soft science. It's come under criticism. It's what, what, what they rely upon. Not, not every investigative lab relies upon it. That's what they did here. But it's not gospel. It's not gospel. Um, another thing about the um, about the 300 blackout, he, he uh, in his closing, Mr. Waters repeatedly said that a Alec bought it. Alec bought it, this, and I assume we're talking about the replacement. I don't know. Alec bought it. Well, Alec didn't buy it. The evidence in the record is Maggie bought it, and he kept saying it's the defendants, and it's not the defendants. The replacement three in blackout, which frankly no one had seen Paul with it in quite some time except Will Loving on one occasion and, and sometime in March. Um, it was Paul's gun. It wasn't Alex's gun. Paul's gun. Um, there's a, a, at one point in time during his closing argument yesterday, Mr. Waters reenacted a ch shooting scenario, if you'll recall. And I'll, I'll do my best, but he stands up here and he says, Alec shoots Paul in the chest one time. And 999,999 times out of a million, that person is dead. He puts his shotgun down and he has a 300 blackout right here because he is so smart and so diab diabolical that. He's going to stage it so it looked like two shooters. So he's got a 300 blackout here, a shotgun that he just took his son out. But his son was one in a million, he says. One in a million. Comes this way. So Alec has to put the 300 blackout back down, pick up the shotgun, and shoot Paul. Where in the world does that scenario reside other than in Mr. Waters' mind? It doesn't. It doesn't. There's no evidence to support anything like that. None. None. And the fact that he has to go to such gymnastics to come up with a Alex staging a two-shooter theory, I ought to tell you there's a two-shooters out there. I ought to tell you, someone to do that. Another curious point in Mr. Waters' uh, closing argument yesterday involves Paul's intuitive talents. You will recall that Alex informed agents that, that Paul was an intuitive little dude. 
refer to him as a, a detective. That um, Miriam Proctor, Maggie's sister, said that that um, Maggie referred to Paul as his little detective, her little detective. And in particular when it came to trying to root out whether Alex was still doing drugs. And then he just sort of left it there. Sort of left it there for you to then um, take it and run with it as if, oh, Paul must have Paul must have found Alec using drugs. There must have been a confrontation down there at the kennel, and that must have been what happened. Now he now he didn't go that far in his argument, but he laid it out there for you to run with. But that was clearly the implication. And I want to tell you first, there are no facts to support that. None whatsoever. Let me add another scenario that's equally as plausible. What if Paul the detective learned, learned the source of drugs that were being sold to his dad? What if Paul the detective goes to that drug source? says, cut it out. That's my dad. You're ruining my family. And if you don't, I'm going to tell on you, turn you in. And what if sources member dangerous drug grant gang? No, I don't object. Well, the, the point is, there's no more evidence to support it. And there was no evidence. What I, those were just plausible scenarios that they were throwing out to you and that you could think up many equally plausible scenarios. But you have to decide the evidence based on the facts that the state puts before you. Not theories, not inferences, not speculation, but cold, hard facts. Mr. Waters also said that Alex, the master liar, accused Shelley, Smith, Blanca, and perhaps another witness of lying. He never did such a thing. He never accused anybody of lying from this witness stand. Now, I've been around long enough to know, long enough to know that, that witnesses can misremember things and believe them to be true. And frankly, I'm the biggest defender of that trait in my household. I, I convinced myself that I, I remembered something accurately and, and I will have an argument with my wife until she shows me photographic evidence that, that I'm just wrong, and that's what it takes. I mean, that happens. People misremember things. But because we point out <clears throat> that there was an inconsistent fact, that doesn't mean we're saying someone lied, and we never did that. We never did that. The, um, one example is Sister Marion. Uh, one example of misremembering. Sister Marion said, that she spoke with Maggie about 7 p.m. while she was at Edisto, and that Alec wanted to come to Moselle to visit her father. Well, we, we know that her recollection is mistaken because we have cell phone records, we've got FBI records, um, we've got, we got her phone bill, we've we got that shows she was in Mount Pleasant, and then she was traveling to Moselle around the period of time where Sister Marion thought she was at Edisto. Did not happen. Um, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean. She was lying about that. Absolutely not. That, that's just how she remembered it. And she also said that when she talked to, um, to Maggie, that, that Maggie was you know, going to go over and visit Mr. Randolph um, at Almeda. But we know from the records that Mr. Randolph had already been readmitted to the hospital. 
I mean, that's in the record. We've got, and then Maggie knew it. We've got Maggie's uh, text to Blanca, I think, in, in the day saying they're putting Mr. Randolph back in the hospital, you know, we're scared for everybody and hope Alec doesn't go down to the hospital. Well, no worries, I'm pointing it out. This is how Miriam remembered it. But if she remembered it incorrectly, and that happens, because we point stuff out like that, we're not saying they're lying. Now, then the same with, with Shelley in the blue tarp. She remembers something. We're not sure what. But the evidence clearly is she says it was on Wednesday, June 16th. And, and we got FBI cell phone forensics. We, we've got records. And we got testimony that Alec is in Somerville. Spent the night with his in-laws, the proctor, excuse me, the Branstadter on, on Tuesday. And he stayed there through the, toward the end of the week. And then they went to, to the mountains at Kiwi. So Alec could not have been knocking on the door of the Almeda house on the morning of, of, of June 16th. And Barbara Mixon came in and, and told you that she relieves Shelly. Shelly works all night, leaves and goes to work at the school district. Barbara Ann comes in at 8 o'clock and relieves Shelly. And, and as Shelly recalled it, as the, the tarp was laid out when she left for work. Barbara Ann came in and said, well, I, I, I didn't see it. No time during that week that when I worked was there a blue tarp. I mean, you know, Shelly remembers something, but she's not a blue raincoat, and it's certainly, um, certainly Alec could not have come over there on Wednesday. Now, now Shelly also says that, that he spoke to me about times, and, and, I, um, and, I, and, and that bothered me, and I called my brother. We're not disputing that. But what she didn't say is Alec told me to um, say I was I was here in 45 minutes or things like that. And, and, and frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense because Alec kept saying, you get my phone records, you get my phone records, and you'll know exactly what time I was when I was there. And, and I'll get to this a little bit more in a moment, but Mr. Waters keeps talking about Oh, he's hurrying to get over there. He's hurrying to get over there to compress the time. Compress the time so that it looks like he's been gone from Moselle longer than he was. Fair enough argument. I understand his, his point, but that point is evaporates when you're talking about how long you are at Almeda. It doesn't matter if he's there 45 minutes is it, or 20 minutes. I mean, does it really matter? Why, how long he was there? Now, I, I guess before you had the OnStar data, they could be saying, oh, he said he was there 45 minutes, but he was only there 22 minutes, and he spent the other 10, 15 minutes tra traipsing through the woods, burying uh, bloody clothes, and, and getting rid of murder weapons. Well, we may have heard that in this trial, had we not gotten the OnStar data from General Motors in the middle of the trial, which shows conclusively he drove over there, he drove straight back. Um, another uh, small point. He said there's biological material on the Polaris. I don't think that was ever tested. It certainly looks like it. But what we've learned in this case is uh, th things aren't always as they seem. They thought they had blood on the shirt. Turns out there's no blood on the shirt. Uh, and that this... Biological material showed that Maggie was running toward her baby. Now, 
I don't know that there's any evidence which way Maggie was running or what she was running to. There's not. I mean, he's. It, it's a fair inference, and everyone who knows Maggie would know that's what she would do. And we're not disputing that that would be her. That would be her mother instinct. And did that probably happen? It probably did. But it's it's just to state as a fact. There's no evidence of that. Now, one thing he, he also said, the cell phone backlight turning on. Um, and, and I don't have an Apple phone. Um, but, so here's the issue. And, and mine won't do it because I don't have an Apple phone, I don't think. But if you, you take a phone flat and pick it up, light comes on. And, 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 and why is that important? Why is that important? Like I say, I, and I'll probably turn this phone off. And, and, and if I'm... If I'm Making a point that you all know the answer to, I apologize, but it's important that you do know the answer to why this is important. It's important because now that we have the OnStar data, we know Alec drove his Suburban by the spot where Maggie's phone was found at 9.08. Now, there's probably some seconds in there, but 9.08. And we know that her phone is in the woods at that point. So the question is, did Alec throw it out the window at 908? And and the answer is, no, he didn't. Because if you throw it out the window, at a minimum, the display light's gonna come on. At a minimum, and when that display light comes on, it registers. These phones say a lot. I, I mean, I was, lesson learned in this case. Um, it registers in this Knowledge C database, and it says, Display light on. And it has a time that the display light came on. Well, there's no, on Maggie's phone, the display light does not come on at 908. Okay? So, uh, means Alec didn't throw the phone out. And, and, it, and, and yesterday, Mr. Um, Water says, every single expert testified that the backlight comes on and sometimes it doesn't when the phone is raised aggressively. That's not true. Only one person testified to that. And Mr. Manigault, who, over the weekend, he works for Charleston County Sheriff's Department. I don't know why they didn't get sled agent to do it, but he sits, apparently he sits, he, he got a phone similar to one that Maggie had, not Maggie's phone, had software, well, not the same version as Maggie, and he spent all weekend throwing the phone on the ground to see what would happen. Or many hours of the day throwing the phone on the ground. And he comes in here and says, Hey folks, sometimes the light comes on, sometimes it doesn't. Well, we, we, our expert, Mika Sturgis, says it comes on. It comes on. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. But folks, we wouldn't even be having this discussion if they had secured Maggie's phone and not allowed the, and not and put it in a Faraday bag so that so that the GPS coordinates on the 7th would not have been written, overwritten. And they were. So now we got a guy down in Charleston throwing a phone around all weekend. Because they are desperate to prove Alec threw the phone out when he went by the, by the room. They got no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is the contrary. He did not. And the evidence supports everything that he had said from the day he had that interview, or, the, or a couple of days. You get the OnStar data, you get... GPS data, 
You get my GPS data and you'll know I'm not traveling with her phone. Never got it, wrote over it, and now we've got a guy tossing a phone in an office, doesn't even work for SLED. Not every expert says that. They, the guys even said that's not his area of expertise. So, if I hit all. Oh, yeah. The last one's about me. Mr. Waters says that I did an HBO interview in November 2022, and he references some things I said in the, in the HBO interview. Well, I didn't, and he knows I didn't. It was testified about. There's an HBO special. I am on it. I'm not telling anybody to watch it, but that was filmed back in, I don't know, spring, summer of 20, 20, 2022. I'm, I'm well before he was charged with murder. I'm not on TV talking about his murder charges, but he wants you to think that, and I don't know why, and I took a little bit offensive to that. I really did. And we object, because he was. I was not being interviewed not being interviewed in November of 2022. Not. So I've asked why, 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 they can't answer that. They don't have an answer as to why. Now, now how? How? How could Alec, in the time period, we know, we're going to get it, we're going to get to it, but how could he have butchered Maggie and Paul without leaving a trace of evidence within a matter of minutes? How, how? We went from why, now how? And the answer to the how is he couldn't. But this is the wrong question to be asking yourself. Because the question that you are tasked with answering is, has the state presented evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt showing that Alec Burchard butchered Maggie and Paul without leaving a trace of evidence all within a matter of minutes. In a matter of minutes. Have they proven evidence? Do they present evidence of that? Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. He was able to make bloody clothes, bloody guns. Um, who, ha who knows how much? What whatever. Disappear in a matter of minutes without leaving a trace without leaving a trace. Of course they haven't. A reasonable doubt is doubt that causes a reasonable person to hesitate in one of the most important decisions of your life. And, and here, the, there's no direct evidence of Alec doing anything other than he's at the kennel, 844, and it's just... just Pleasant family talking about Bubba the dog getting a chicken. So the state's trying to weave this story of, of his guilt based upon circumstantial evidence. And, and the judge will charge on circumstantial evidence, and I have no dispute with what the state put up here yesterday because that's the law, and, and, and you're going to get it. He's going to give you the written document with the charge. And you will see in there that when they rely upon circumstantial evidence, it's as good as direct evidence, but there's some things that it has to do to be as good as direct evidence. 
And, the, and what it has to do, the circumstantial evidence is that the circumstances must be consistent with each other and when taken together point conclusively, conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. And if these circumstances portray the behavior of a defendant as suspicious, the proof has failed. That's circumstantial evidence. So what are the circumstances that the state relies upon? Well, he was at the kennel at 844. Uh, Paul last used his phone at 848. He replied to a text with a friend about a movie recommendation. Maggie's phone locked for the last time at 850. Actually, 849 and 50 some odd seconds, but 850. But, however, her phone recorded significant steps around 8.55, and we're going to see that, and her phone tried to activate the camera at 8.55, and it registered an orientation change at 9.06. And I, I, I think pretty much understand orientation change, but, but when the phone goes from landscape to um, portrait or Mrs. Lent, uh, beats me, but goes from that to that, that is an orientation change. And it, the phone will tell you. So it did that at 9.06. Um, and, and they've got 300 shell casings, the extractor and ejector markings, markings matched with casings found around the house and shooter range. Um, so that's pretty much it. And then, then of the circumstantial evidence of his guilt. Now they want to say, well, he lied about it, so it's consciousness of guilt, but I'm talking about what evidence they have put all the circumstances together, prove he shot and killed Maggie Paul, and that's pretty much it. Um, and, and how have they established the time of death here? Solely on cell phone use. Solely on cell phone use. And, and using the phone or not using the phone doesn't dictate or define whether you're dead or alive. I mean, I'd say most everybody in this courtroom does not have their phone with them right now. Under, under the state's theory, as I mentioned before, you know, if they die while they're not using their phone, then they're dead the moment they stop using their phone. That, that's what they have here. That is their case. Um, there are a number of reasons that Paul would stop using his phone. Um, first, well, first, so I got two testimonial clips, one from Rogan. Remember Rogan Gibson, if you'll play that uh, quickly, Doug. This is Rogan testifying about Paul's phone. You were asked a little bit about Paul's cell phone usage. He, he was on it a lot. He was on it a lot, yes, sir. Yeah. And, um, and did battery get down? Okay. What is the objection? Not showing the witness, but showing the defendant while the witness is testifying. I think the testimony was the legal basis for the objection. That is correct. All right. Mr. Griffin. It's a clip from the live feed of this trial, Your Honor. I, I can't control who's, who is uh, being depicted, but it's the boy, my voice asking Rogan. Been in trial. How many weeks? Six weeks. All right. So we're not going to replay the trial. That's right. That's a clip of a few seconds. I sustained the objection. 
right, take it down, Bill. So you will remember that Rogan said that when Paul's phone, and, and, and by the way, if you don't remember and you have questions about it, when you, you jury deliberations, you can always ask to have testimony replayed for you through the audio without the video. You're asking me, yes. what can you do? I, I rule on objections. Can you play the audio then, please? You asked a little bit about Paul's cell phone usage. He, he was on a lot. He was on a lot, yes, sir. Yeah. And, um, and did the battery get down low pretty regularly? Yes, he would let his phone die sometime or he would lose it. Well, and, and when it would get down low, did, did he have a habit of, you know, not using it to try to keep him going all the way out? Yes, I have seen that happen before. And have you done that yourself? <laughs> yes, sir. All right, and, and so you'll know from the photographs and the evidence in, in the case that Paul's phone was at 2%, at 2%, and it was on low power mode at the time um, he was texting this friend of his about a movie recommendation and then um, can you play the audio only of uh, you remember Nate uh, Tootin and he testified about Paul putting the phone down when he was working around the kennels um, and how would you describe the relationship between Paul and Alex they had a really good relationship would you say that Alex I don't, I don't think that's the right clue the, um, so there's, Mr. Tootin testified that when Paul would work, he would put the phone down, forget where it was at times, and that it was pretty common for him to put the phone down at the, at, at the kennel so he wouldn't get it wet. And, um, and, and you recall, they, Dale Davis, they brought him to the stand. I think they brought him to the stand to, to make it seem like the hose was unraveled and then it was use and put back and we know from the from the video and, and you can see it again the dog kennel video we pointed out the hose is on the ground outside Cash's kennels and Mr. Davis says yeah that you know that, that was not how I left it someone had put it down and then um, then I'm going to um, show you Doug, can I have the um, Elmo, please?
and gentlemen, um, you'll have back in the jury room states exhibit 503, which is a picture of the dog kennels uh, from the murder scene. And and what I'm, what I'm pointing out on top of these two kennels are dog beds. You'll see exhibit 503. The dog beds are up here on top. And, and you recall Dale Davis says that when you clean out the kennels, hose it down, you put the dog beds on top. On top. So it's pretty clear from these photos, this photo, that Paul and or Maggie had sprayed out those dog runs and put the dog beds on top um, and that and put the hose away and put the hose away. Uh, Alec testified that the Bubba and Grady had on collars and, and we see the collars in states 45 and so the collars hanging here but the collars hanging here here and then there's collars here and the dogs don't have collars on, on them in, in the dog picture so it's a fair 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 conclusion that after Alec left when he said he left that Paul puts Bubba up Paul puts Grady up, Grady up, after cleaning out the kennels, and, and then he goes back into the feed room to get his phone where he was confronted, where he was confronted. Or sometime later it happened. I don't know. You could, um, but they are relying upon cell phone usage uh, for time of death. The coroner said he, he did the armpit test, which is no test at all. It's just a guesstimate. Um, the, um, can you pull up in evidence? Um, now, now I want to talk about Maggie's phone and, our, and defendant's exhibit 158, please. So this is Maggie's phone timeline that, that we put in evidence and this is going from 849 to 907 and and if you'll just just walk through it um, you'll see at 849 26 last text message read by Maggie okay go to the next one 849 28 backlight off go to the next one 849 31 phone locks and range locked until recovery by law enforcement it was locked for the last time and never unlocked. 853. But on 853, the backlight comes on. Backlight comes on. It's being manipulated. 853.12. Orientation to portrait starts. 853.15. Phone begins logging 59 steps. Um, 853.20. There's a Siri usage, and the testimony is you can get that by squeezing the button. 853.24, the orientation portrait completes, so it's, it switches. And then 853.28, backlight is off. Uh, next, backlight is on. Backlight is off again. And it's on again. Keep going. And then 854.34, camera use starts. It's activated by touching the camera icon or by swiping left from the lock screen. The um, um, 
there was a question as to whether that could be from facial recognition. And, um, and Lieutenant Dove said that, that that information resides in the Knowledge C database, but he did not look for it. Michael Sturgis, our expert, looked for it, found it, and came and told you that was not a facial recognition miss. It was from intentionally activating the, the phone only for one second. Um, go to the next slide. Camera usage ends. <clears throat> go to the next slide. Uh, orientation of landscape starts. 8.54.44, it ends. And then 8.55, so the point is there's a lot going on with Maggie's phone at 8, around 8.55. Keep, keep going. Keep going. And then at, at 9.03, the backlight goes off. And at 9.04, there's a missed call from Alex. And at 9.04, 23, the backlight's off, and 904-41, the missed call from Alec ends. So let's, let's back up to, let's go to 904-23, missed call from Alex, okay? And this was the testimony on, on 904-23, and it's important. Alex calls Maggie, and when that happens, you would... Um, um, her backlight was on. Go, go back one more. So her backlight is on at 9.03.52. At 9.04, missed call from Alex starts. <coughs> at 9.04.23, and instantaneously, the backlight goes off. Now, you heard the testimony of that. It means when that call came in, someone pushed on the side to stop the call. Now, now was that done by Maggie because she was over on the other side of the, the workshop where we see those footprints that we heard about that were never really analyzed um, and that she didn't want any noise coming through? Or was that some bad guy or bad person has Maggie's phone and stops the call? But something's going on with her phone at 904. I'll tell you that. And then at 904, the next one is, is missed call from Alex ends. 905, um, backlight on. 906, orientation changes to portrait. 907, incoming call from Alex. Excuse me, 906, 14. Keep going, Doug. And, and, 906.52, keep going. And then at, then at 907, her, her, phone, her phone stops for good. Um, now, one of the things that, that you heard in this case is... Um, that orientation change was at 906 that, that we, we just talked about. And, and Doug, if you'll go to the, um, if you go to uh, Defendants 156, please. And so these are uh, Alex steps on his phone that registered during this time period. 
And, and if you'll go to entry, if you'll look at entry 28, and if you'll pull that out, Doug. All right, so, so 28, this is between 902.18 and 906.47. And, and this is the time period that, that Mr. Waters in, in his argument said was scurrying around because he took, can, can yeah, just bring it back a little bit more, please. So we, can we do it so we can see the whole line? Just, that's fine. So that, um, so here we see line 28 between 902 and 906, uh, there's 283 steps, and, and it went 208 meters. Uh, so I want you to first, and, and so they take the position that this is him scurrying around, but if you, do the math, which we haven't done here on this document, but 283 steps in 269 minutes, <clears throat> excuse me, 269 seconds, um, turns out to be 1.05 steps per second. 0 .05. 1.05 steps per second. Multiply that by 60, you get 63 steps per second. And if, ladies and gentlemen, this is a slow walk. One step per second. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005. This is Alex scurrying around, according to the state's case. And, and if you look at the distance in of uh, the last, uh, when he gets, I guess, to the house at 755 to 855, he goes 203 meters before it stops registering. And then, it, one, one thing you will remember during this time period between 902 and 906, and 906, Maggie's phone has an orientation change. Her phone has moved from here to here, but what her phone doesn't have, go to the second page. What her phone doesn't have are steps, are steps. And, and Lieutenant Dove testified that, yeah, it doesn't look like anyone that her phone is moving at 906, but there's no steps being registered. Alec is walking from 902 to 906. So, bear the reason that Maggie is not, excuse me, Alec is not walking with Maggie's phone. That's the timeline data that, that I wanted to review with you. The, um, um, if, if you'll go to Exhibit 524, um, Defense Exhibit 524, please. I think it's 
Yeah, states 524. I'm sorry. Do you have that? So if you, you'll go to the slide uh, where no, no, so not not 38. Do you have the whole document or you don't? Oh, yeah. We'll drop that. Drop that. Okay. Well, the um, I mentioned earlier, and, and so States Exhibit 524 is all the OnStar data. You will see there that he goes by the spot at 908 where Maggie's phone was, was, was found. And, and there was testimony that he sped up after he went by there. He sped up to like from 42 to 45 and went back down to 44 miles an hour when he went by there. He's not speeding up when he goes by the area uh, where Maggie's phone was found whenever it was tossed. Um, and, and then they 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 have you know a chart or slide that talks about how long it took him to get over there and the speeds that it took. And Mr. Um, Mr. Waters was arguing to you that that compressed the timeline. The faster he gets over to Almeda, that it, it means that he's gone longer from Moselle, and it gives him a better alibi because, as you know, he's. He's orchestrating this alibi. And, and so he's driving fast over to Almeda according to their, their theory. And, and, and we graphed it out and, and he's driving, he's passing some cars and he is, um, you know, he's a fast driver. Um, okay, so they say, oh, he's compressing the timeline. Compre compressing the timeline is what they say. Compressing the timeline. But then they say, he drives fast on the way back. Why? He's driving the same speed over there, same speed back. There's no reason to compress the timeline coming back. I mean, you'd want to be driving slow as you can to make it appear you've been gone a lot longer. I mean, he drives the same speed from Moselle to uh, Almeida as from Almeida back to Moselle. It takes him the same amount of time. He's not compressing any timeline at all. And what and what's the most curious part about about Maggie's phone? About Maggie's phone? What's most curious about it is Alec has her password. Alec, if he is wanting to change the timeline when he calls her phone he should answer her phone. When he texts her, he should reply to that text to show activity on her phone that she's still alive. If he, want, if he is manufacturing a timeline by speeding, the easiest way to do it is use both phones, talk on both phones, and he did it. I mean, this whole thing about using Maggie's phone, driving Maggie's phone, throwing Maggie's phone out, is it's such a stretch for them to come in and try to put the, her phone in his hand. And, and, and then you start thinking through, why would Alec take her phone and not Paul's phone? Let's start there. Why would Alec take her phone and not Paul's phone? That's a question I don't have an answer to. It makes no sense. It makes no sense why he would take Maggie's phone if there's something on there. He knows her password.
Put it in. See what it is. We know from all this phone data, her phone was never unlocked. And he had the keys. So if he's taking her phone to unlock or to do something with it, he did it. And so why? 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 And these are circumstances that have to be consistent with each other and have to point conclusively to the guilt of Alec Murdoch, beyond a reasonable doubt. And these circumstances just raise more questions, ladies and gentlemen, raise more questions that we wouldn't have to be dealing with if they had just simply secured Maggie's phone in a Faraday bag on June the 8th when they got it. We wouldn't be here. So we do know from the timeline that, that Alec left the property at, at 907. Were, were they killed before he left? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. But we do know that if he was in the house when the shots were made down at the kennel, that he would not have heard them. You, we had decibel testing from Mr. Sutton. Now, now they, they were angry with Mr. Sutton's angle test. They were angry, not angry, but they challenged his, his, his conclusions on a lot of things. But they didn't touch his acoustic testing. Didn't doubt that. Hasn't, haven't challenged that. And so if he's in the house and shots are going down, ringing down at the kennel, he doesn't hear them. He doesn't hear them. Um, now, they say that sometime after 8.44, and, and they peg it, 8.48, 8.50, because that's when Paul last um, responded to a text from this uh, friend of his. But they ignore the fact that it had to be cleaned up. And, and I think Buster testified that takes 10 minutes at least to, to get the dogs in, clean up, and et cetera. But, and then there's all this 8.55 stuff going on on, on Maggie's phone. But, but let's, let's, let's take him at, at their theory at 8.50 after having a pleasant conversation talking about is it a guinea or is it a chicken and Bubba, you know, and getting, I mean, all right, so four minutes later, let's go ahead and kill my wife and my son because I got questioned at the office today by Jeannie Secretary. Okay, that, that's their case. So let, let's, let's, let's run with it and see where it takes us. Well, it, it takes us that he leaves the property at 9.07. So from the moment, so it, if, He's, he's got, you know, if, well, if it happens at 8.50, he's, he's, got 10, he's got 17 minutes. 17 minutes. He would have to be a magician to make all that evidence disappear. As you heard, under either uh, Dr. Kinsey or Mr. Palmbach, Dr. Reamer and Dr. Kinsey, Mr. Palmbach and, and Dr. Eisenstadt, either way, the shooter's covered with blood on Paul's shooting. And that's what all that testimony was about. It wasn't about trying to figure out um, who's, who's got the right angles. The whole point of that is, while we ended up having to get our own experts, is to, to prove the shooter is covered in biological material, covered in blood, covered in, um, in, in everything because of the blowback. And it wasn't until on reply that Dr. Kennedy said, oh, well, there'd be blowback under my version, too. 
Blowback meaning blood, biological material from killing Paul. So the shooter's covered in blood. The shooter's gun is covered in blood. And that... There's not sufficient amount of time to clean all that up, make all that disappear. And then call your son Buster, driving to visit your mother, who he had gotten a call from Barbara Mixon earlier today and said your mother's agitated because your dad went back in the hospital and you might want to check on her. He goes to check on her. He calls Buster. And does he say, hey, hey, boss, I just blew your mom and brother up. You should, you should see the damn mess. Are you kidding me? He calls Chris Wilson. Normal conversation. He calls his brother John Marvin, talking about his dad. And then, then he goes over there and he sits down with Shelly and, and sits on his mom's dad. And he, he, he stays there 20 minutes, not 40 minutes or 22 minutes. I don't know. The, the records show what time. But the fact of the matter is he's got no blood on him. He's, he's acting normal as every day. He is the same old Alec. Yet their theory is he just blew the person, he, the people he loved the most in this world, blew them away. Now, talk a little bit about the angles that uh, Mr. Sutton did, his reverse trajectories on the, um, on the shots. And, and I mean, they, they're having a good time um, joking about the size of the figure in the pharaoh saying, oh, it must have been a 12-year-old kid, it's 5'2", five 5'4", five and, and, you know, let them have their fun, but that's not what the testimony was. The testimony was that the barrel of the gun has to be at that level um, to make the shot into the quail pen. We didn't take the measurements. SLED took the measurements. And so, yeah, could a 6'4 person get down to that level? Sure. And all Mr. Sutton says that's not a natural shooting angle. Could a 6'4 person get on their knees? Sure. Shooters are, are in movement, and and a six-four person is going to be moving around on their knees. I don't think so. Um, but you know, the most common sense thing here is there were two shooters because there were two guns. And as um, Mr. Palmbach said, one gun is high capacity, holds 10, 20, 30 rounds. And if you're going down to execute somebody, one gun's enough. Why take another gun that only has three shots? It, it's and and Dr. Kinsey agreed with the angle coming out of the bird, the quail pen, so that the angle puts it pretty far away from the door of the feed room where Paul's killed. But but it's not our burden. It's not our burden. It's their burden to prove to you based on circumstantial evidence 
that all the circumstances are consistent with each other and point conclusively to the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And those facts are just not consistent. Those facts are just not consistent. I want to say a word about um, condition of um, Paul and Maggie, particularly Paul. I'm not going to show you any photos. Um, but I think you would agree that it was so bad. It was so bad. And Alec, in the back of the car, with me in the back of that, you could see me on, on the camera, um, sitting there talking to Agent Owen and Agent Craw, and he says it is so bad, they did him so bad. Agent Croft misheard that and said, he said, I did him so bad. And I think the evidence is everyone who's listened to it and everyone who knows what Alex was talking about around that time says they did him so bad. And Agent Owens was in the car, and he doesn't say to you, oh, he actually said, I did him so bad. I think we can put that issue to rest, but, but that, that issue points to a bigger question. What would they be saying in this trial if that conversation wasn't videotaped? What would they be saying? We know Agent Croft would be saying, he said, I did him so bad. And then where would we be then? I am grateful to SLED that they videotaped that. So that you'll hear it if you have any questions. I don't think you should, but they did him so bad. That is for sure. Another thing that, that we're going to clear up right now is Alex's concern for Buster. You heard that, and you, you heard that in Mr. Waters' closing. That, on the, that in the statements that Alec made on the roadside shooting in Labor Day weekend where he tried to arrange a assisted suicide, that he told officers that there's no danger to Buster. Of course, there was no danger to Buster because of that roadside shooting because he knew who shot him, Curtis A.D. Smith. He knew he was trying to get himself killed. But from that, there's going... The reason he knows there's nothing to worry about Buster is because he knows he did it. That's what, that's what was just argued yesterday. Well, Deputy McDowell, in a body cam video that's in evidence, um, captured Alex speaking to Buddy Hill about his concern about Buster's safety. Will you play that now, Doug? It's in evidence. I don't have the exhibit number.
you hear that? Can y'all get a police officer for my oldest son in Columbia? What about Buster? What about Buster? Can y'all get a police officer for my oldest son? Buddy, can y'all get a police officer for my oldest son in Columbia? That's Buddy Hill, the sheriff. And they want to come in here and tell you he wasn't concerned for Buster's safety? Once again, I'm grateful Colleton County Sheriff's Department had body cams. Now you know. You know Alec was concerned. You know Alec asked for a police officer for his son in Columbia, Buster. Now I'm almost... I'm almost done, I promise. Um, but I do want to talk about Alex's misstatements about time. Alex told um, Deputy Owen during the interviews that, well, first, Alex's statements about time are not lies. They are just misstatements. And, and, and even, like I said, um, Deputy Owen says people make mistakes about all the Agent Owen, I'm sorry, Agent Owen. They make mistakes about time all, all the time. And... And they do. Now, Mr. Waters is critical because Alec was wrong every time he gave a time estimate. Turns out, I think Mr. Waters is probably right about that. Whether the time period is inconsequential or consequential, he's wrong about it. And the um, and, and and we had brought in, you know, Alec had told. Um, Deputies in an interview that, that he got home at 5 o'clock, and that's not true. That he went to work that day at 8.30, and that's not true. And, and, that, um, and, and so he is just wrong on times. But what was consistent, whenever he had an interview, he said, you get the records. You get the records, and it will show what time I was, did this, what time I did that. It will all be in the records. I, and... and and guess what? They are in the records. And, and when the records show that his time estimate was wrong, you know, they jump up and down. They jump up and down. The, um, the, uh, the, the statement to uh, Deputy Green, he says, I've gone, to my mo I've gone to my mom's for about an hour and a half, and, and I last saw them 45 minutes. Now, that, that I, I don't know. I, frankly, frankly. Don't know if that's wrong or not. I mean, he's talking to Deputy Green about 1030. Um, hour and a half from 1030 is 9 o'clock. I mean, he left. He left at 9, you know, he left at 907. Um, but that's that. The um, question about what he did when he um, got down to the scene and, and he said he, he ran up to Paul and Maggie, and, and he left his phone, and then he went back to get his phone, and um, and, and that, and then he's talking to the 911 operator, and you can hear it, and, and he says, "I've been up to it now. It's bad." Um, he doesn't remember the sequencing, and I don't think anyone should hold that against him. Um, you know, Mr. Waters gets up here and says, "Maggie was running to her baby." Alec was running to his baby. And can you imagine what he saw? 
And is it evidence of guilt that he doesn't remember what the sequencing was in that moment? Is that evidence? Is that evidence of guilt? Or is that evidence of trauma? There's a guy that then went to get a 12-gauge shotgun and he put 16-gauge shells in it. He knows the difference. But he didn't know that night. And I'm not quite understanding what the state makes of this. Did he not go up to their bodies? Because the forensic evidence sure speaks to the contrary. What we have is Maggie's DNA all over his T-shirt. And you heard that from Agent Zapata. We have Paul's DNA on his T-shirt. How did he get Paul and Maggie's DNA on his T-shirt if he didn't touch them? If he brutally murdered them, hosed off down there next to their dead bodies, got in the golf cart butt naked, drove to the house, changed clothes, DNA on his body because it's on there. Their forensic lab tells you that. Because he went up to them and touched them. And then there's a spot of blood on the suburban uh, steering wheel that was Maggie's. And we know that the suburban was never down at the kennel thanks to the OnStar information. Thanks to, uh, I'm not Sure, that was an accepted fact until OnStar sent their stuff in, but the Suburban never went down to the kennel until after he returned back from Moselle. So we know the blood got on the steering wheel after he checked Maggie like he said he did on the 911 call. And then there's a spot of blood on the gun that he went to get. And then there's GSR. There's GSR. There's three particles of GSR on his shirt, three particles of GSR on his shorts, and one on his finger. And, and the sled agent testified that's consistent with transfer GSR when you when you pick up a gun. So but really we're back to the lie. We are back to the lie. Um, because that's all they have in this case is that Alec lied to them when he was, when he last saw them, and he, and he shouldn't have, and he shouldn't have. And he said, "What a tangled web we weave once we start to deceive, and once he lied the first time, he had was stuck with the lie, and he continued to lie, and he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. And he told you, you know, what was going through his mind. Probably wasn't rational." But he was in the throes of an addiction, and he had just found his wife and son murdered. And he's being interviewed. He'd been swiped for GSR. And he does think David Owen is the guy that, that investigated his friend. Um, but he was wrong. He told you. turns out he was wrong. But I thought that's who it was that night. And he was under investigation. 
he was being accused of obstructing the boating accident investigation. And he's under investigation by said for that. And he had all these skeletons in his closet. And he was wanting to get them away from him and looking for the real killer. The state in this case has gone to lengths trying to, through a sleight of hand, uh, convince you of this and show you that and w without convince you of guilt, without showing evidence of guilt, convince you that he murdered his wife and son because of financial misdeeds were going to come out, um, which is about the most illogical thing imaginable, and there's no evidence of that. And, th and then the state brings all these shotguns in here, and I'm, I'm not going to pick every one of them up, um, but the forensic evidence on these shotguns is they have, well, they can't be excluded. Well, okay. They can't be included either, so you know nothing more about these shotguns than you would have the day you showed up for jury selection because there's nothing to know about them. Can't exclude them, can't include them according to them, but we do know there's no blood, guts, brains on any, on any of the guns that would have been there from the shooting under everybody's interpretation of how Paul's murder. The, the, I mean, they want, they, they want you to think that because you own guns that you should be viewed differently I don't know what else to make of that. I don't know what else to make of that. When this trial began with opening statements on January 25th, Mr. Harputlin asked, why? Why? Why would Alex execute his wife and son in cold blood? And here we are, six weeks later. And you've heard weeks of testimony about Alex's financial crimes, drug addiction, and lies. But after all that, the state has failed to prove to provide a satisfactory answer to this question. Why, why, why? The state cannot provide an answer to this question because the answer is he would not. He would not, under any circumstances, murder those that meant the most to him. Your oath requires that you hold the state to the exacting standard of proof that the state must prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and when they rely solely on circumstantial evidence, these circumstances must be consistent with each other and when taken together point conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they merely portray the behavior of the defendant as suspicious, you must find him not guilty. The state's evidence fails to meet these requirements. Circumstances don't point conclusively to Alex's guilt. Far from it. Mr. Waters wants you to believe that Alex slaughtered Maggie and Paul on June 7th and repeatedly lied and changed the story to fit the timeline and evidence. As it turns out, as it turns out, in fact, the state is the one that's been manipulating evidence to fit their theories of guilt, which changed over time from the date of these murders until yesterday. In the absence of forensic science, a reliable investigation, the guns, blood spatter, the time and opportunity to have committed these murders, 
You're instead left to make inferences about all sorts of interactions and behaviors. Prosecution wants you to view the evidence through the diabolical monster lens that they have tried to paint, but the law requires you to view it through the lens of innocence, where none of these things, individually or taken together, prove conclusively to Alex's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. <clears throat> Up until now, you've not been able to say a single word. can't imagine how frustrating that must be. But soon, soon you will have the most powerful voice in this courtroom. With your words, you can let everyone know that in a court of law, only evidence and the burden of proof matters. Not gossip, innuendo, opinions, and most of all, not theories layered on top of speculation. With your words, you can let the state know that they don't get to obtain an indictment by misleading a grand jury and then bring you bef before you a case built on theories, speculation. There are two words that justice demands in this case, and those two words are not guilty. The oath you've taken in this case is to follow the law, to follow the Constitution, and to hold the government to the burden of proof. And it requires a verdict of not guilty. On behalf of Alex, on behalf of Buster, on behalf of Maggie, and on behalf of my friend Paul, I respectfully request that you do not compound a family tragedy with another. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll send you to the jury room for a break. Please do not discuss the case. Everyone will be seated. So, uh, Mr. Meadows, are you closing on behalf of the state? Yes, sir. Um, do you have an estimated length of time that you might go? No more than 40 minutes. Uh, you ready to go? Um, if you give me, I just need to go to the bathroom. Sure. <laughs> All right, we'll take a uh, five-minute recess.
Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, state gets an opportunity to do, to do a rebuttal. Mr. Meadows. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Attorney General Alan Wilson, Deputy Don Zelenka and Deputy Attorney General Craig Waters and this entire team, and I want to name them all, but thank you for being here. Thank you for the attention you've given this case. Being a juror is not an easy job. I'm not a jury watcher. I don't sit and stare at jurors, but goodness knows we've been here six weeks. I have looked over occasionally. Not to pry, but I've noticed when I have looked, you've all paid attention, so thank you. Six weeks. Thank you. And I'm not going to be that long. Your clerk, um, Ms. Hill, has done an outstanding job bringing the world to Colleton County, bringing the world right here with the hospitality of your grace. making everything as convenient as she can. But the one thing she didn't do and couldn't do is give you a booklet on how to be a juror. Five and a half weeks ago when y'all got here, six weeks ago, she didn't have that pamphlet for you because they don't exist. There's not a book on how to be a juror. But you have been preparing for this moment in this courtroom to decide this case your entire life. And it's called life. It's called living. 
It's called experiences. It's called interacting with your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, your good experiences, your bad experiences, evaluating people and deciding what's credible, what's believable. It's true in every case I've ever tried in my 34 years of doing nothing but murder cases. Credibility, believability. And I agree with Mr. Griffin. When I looked at this case the first time, I said to myself, this is a CSC case. Now, in our world, that means criminal sexual conduct. It's not a criminal sexual conduct case. This is a common sense case. And you didn't leave that common sense with you when you came here six weeks ago. It's with you now. It's been with you during the six weeks here. And you're going to take it back into the jury room. I've been listening yesterday and today, and we all have, about <coughs> law enforcement didn't do this, law enforcement didn't do that. I think they actually said they fabricated evidence. Putting law enforcement on trial. I once called Mr. Harputin in a trial an automatic smokescreen machine. I think what the defense is doing in this case it's more like an eclipse. <laughs> you remember that eclipse on August 17th of 2017 where it kind of got dark for a little bit and the birds started chirping and you almost you felt like it was dark and then it cleared. The eclipse went over and the light came back. That's what the defense is doing. Taking away, taking you away from the facts, from the credibility and say, wait a minute, there's a clip here, there's a smoke screen here. Look at that. And I, somebody said the word offensive. I find it offensive that a family with a great-grandfather, a grandfather, a father, Celeste Randolph Murdoch, who was good to me when I was a young man, prosecutor, he knew I wanted to do this as my job. He knew I cared about this job. This is the best job in the world. I tried to be Celeste three times as long. It doesn't get any better than this job. And I find it offensive that the defense, who the defendant, who was also a part-time solicitor, is claiming that law enforcement didn't do their job, listen to me, please, didn't do their job while he is withholding and obstructing justice by not saying, I was down at the kennels. I was down at the kennels. I was down at the kennels. And he's going to blame everybody else. Is that offensive? Is that offensive? Mr. Griffin said a minute ago, can you imagine coming up on the scene and seeing, can you imagine not telling law enforcement, lying that I was down there and I saw him, I was right there, why wouldn't you tell them that? Maybe get some more evidence. Did you hear somebody? No, I wasn't even down there. Credibility, believability. That really does sum it up. You remember 
six weeks ago today when um, Mr. Waters' fantastic opening and talked about direct evidence. And direct evidence is something you, you, get, you know it when you see it. It's evidence you gather with one of your senses. You hear it, you feel it, you smell it, you touch it, and you come in here and tell witnesses, hey, this is what I heard, what I felt, what I smelled, what I touched. But do you remember when he was describing circumstantial evidence? There was a storm that day coming. Part of his theme, the storm just happened to come. And you could hear it coming. And then, during part of his opening, you remember it started raining? You could hear it. You could feel it. It's almost like circumstantial evidence morphed into direct evidence. And that's what happened in this case. Circumstantial evidence became direct evidence in many instances. This case is about two things. It's about being real. Being real. And choices. My mama gave me a book when I was a little boy about the Velveteen Rabbit. It's actually going off to college dealing with people and learning about people and <clears throat> tough times in life. Go get the Velveteen Rabbit and read it if you haven't read it. But she just put in the front of that book and I love my mom. Always be real. Always be real. And this case is about that defender never being real. And choices, which I'll get to at my end. Ladies and gentlemen, but they blame everybody but Alex. Everybody but Alex. Let's go back to the first. I'm not going to bring it out. But this back here, the press release was sent out. There's no danger. There's no danger. What did Alex not do? They showed a tape there. He's asking the sheriff, I think, call Buster. First time he tried to call Buster, that was, took the sheriff a while to get out there. You know when the first time he called Buster? About 40 minutes. Well, actually, he texted him. Didn't even call him. Wasn't his first thought. Wasn't the thing after he did 911. It was later. Perhaps even when some of his friends had gotten there. They, oh, don't call. No, right off the bat, this happened. Call my son. Call him. Buster, stay where you are. You with your girlfriend? Up there in North Charlotte? Go, go, go. We got some people after us. That's what's real. Don't you? You go to the police station right there. And what else do you do, too? You don't talk about being real. What do you do? Y'all, I just left my mama. She's with Shelly. Get somebody over there. Get them over there. If these people are out here to kill us, get them over there. Go, please, take them right now. They're by themselves. I can't do that. That's why I took the guns. I can't tell them that. That's what's real. 
And he brings up the boat case right away. Right away. A year and a half previous. He's coming up for a hearing. Nobody's thinking about that boat case except Alice. And right then, he's using it to throw off. Here's your first suspect. Does that make any sense? They have a hearing coming up. They're going to look into resolve this thing. Nobody's out there thinking about a boat case on a Monday night. Anybody upset about that? Think about all the facts that would have to happen. They'd have to know both that, as Mr. Water said, somebody in the boat case would have to know that they're both there. They'd have to know they were there. They'd have to know that Alex is just wasn't there. Oh, no, wait a minute. That he was there, but just for a little bit and went back up to the house. And they'd have to come. You know what? We don't need a gun. There'll be guns there for us to use. Yes, and that's great circumstantial and direct evidence. I'll get to that. They'll have guns there for us. They'll have guns there for us. We can use them. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Let's talk about murder. Murder is the intentional, malicious killing of another living, breathing human being with malice aforethought. What's malice? Y'all know what malice is. It's the name malice. It's the evil wickedness one person shows to another. You know how long it's got to exist? Just like that. At the pulling of a trigger. 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 Malice aforethought. It can be expressed. Rarely happens. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> or it can be inferred. It can be inferred with the use of one gun. There's no claim of self-defense here. They're claiming they weren't there. It can be inferred two guns. Malice a forethought. And we don't have premeditation in this state. We don't have to prove premeditation. We don't have to prove motive. I think it's been proven. His world was collapsing. Mr. Griffin goes, does that make sense? Did in his mind. His world's collapsing. His world's coming down. This was the only way he could save. It's the only way only way to save Alex. <laughs> but if you don't, if that motive, well, I don't know, is that enough? Don't know. We don't have to prove motive. We're certainly there. That's one explanation. But if he's down there and he's angry, just don't sound like a real jovial there. Bubba! Don't let me forget about Bubba. Bubba! Come here. Maybe you got angry at Paul. Maybe you got angry, you know, you started all this with the boat case. And maybe he just lost it. Maybe he just lost it. Maybe he looked like a suicide. And then Maggie came. And he had to shoot her. I don't know. Only one person knows. And that's why we've got the motive. That's why we say he did it. But we don't even have to have motive. Just angry. He did it. Nobody else could have done it. Nobody else did do it. I'm going to get to that, and that's how we prove beyond, I want to say all that. 
but our burden's only reasonable then. But losing it, and then you get the question, well, have you proven malice? Well, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Two shots to Paul. Malicious. First one didn't do it, the second one finishes him off. Five shots to Maggie. Not an accident. One shot, two shots, three shots, four shots, maybe five shots, depending on whether this one's thrown through. That's malicious. So if you find he killed him and you get to malice, I don't think there's any dispute in the about that this is a malicious killing. But I've got to go over that with you. Malice of forethought. And then the burden. The burden on us in this case, as in every case that's tried in this wonderful land of ours, that's why this is so great, I agree with is beyond a reasonable doubt. We'll borrow one of these waters if that's okay. It's not beyond all doubt. If that's the case, this courtroom wouldn't have been here as historically as long as it had. The law doesn't describe that. And listen to his honor. And I'm not playing up to him. He is the best. He's the law. Listen to him when he reads the law. Beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not beyond all doubt. We can't do that. It's beyond a doubt that would make reasonable folks hesitate to act. I was trying to retrial a case years ago and reading reasonable doubt from this ex-solicitor. Solicitor Wilson, I'll give him credit. Describing reasonable doubt. And he said, sometimes, you know, questions are just questions. You can't answer every question. And the law doesn't require it. If after hearing all the evidence... You don't, or if you're firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt, you must find him guilty. If, on the other hand, you're not firmly convinced, then you must find him not guilty. goes to see his mother. He goes and you see the own star taking him up to the side over near the smokehouse. We submit to you that's when he went to hide the guns. It's common sense. We submit to you that there's a driveway there. Nice pavement. You can go look at it. Nice paved driveway. Submit to you when he came it was 9.30 at night. Testimony is very unusual, very rare. Kind of funny, his aunt, Miss Nixon, who testified earlier, we talked to her recently, didn't remember any of the conversation, but said she called and said he told him your, your, your dad's not doing well. Well, he didn't go over there that afternoon when he got the phone call, when his office is right near there. Go see him then. He didn't do that. He waited to 9.30. I don't know if anybody's got any folks that are suffering from Alzheimer's, but when they're asleep, they're tired. He wasn't going to love his mom. He wasn't going to be with her. He was going there because he loves Alex. He loves Alex. And he was going there to create his alibi at 9.30 at night. You should come and sit. And you remember, um, she said he called. 
Well, what happened after that? Well, it was about five minutes or so. At first I was thinking, that's when he was going to hide to go. And the time frame over there is so important, not for how long he was from left to come back, but it's how long he was in there with Shelly. How long he was in there. Because that's when he was hiding the guns. The guns are missing, y'all. He was hiding the guns. And what does Shelly say? He didn't stay long. 15, 20 minutes. He left. And later that week, he kind of just kind of Later that week, and I don't know which one in my mind right now, I'm so tired. But one of the days she came by, I think it was after the visitation, and he says, uh, Shelly, you remember? You remember I was uh, here about 35 or 40 minutes? Y'all remember looking at her up there on the scene? And she got visibly upset. I said, What's wrong? Ask her, what's wrong? Why, what's wrong there? Was he there 35, 40 minutes? No, sir. Why are you upset? It's a good family. You think she knew right then? He's coming back to say, hey, I was here 35, 40 minutes now visiting my mom. Shelly said, no. No, you weren't. So upset that she calls her brother, police officer in Yannisee. You think she knew right then? And that's real. That's real. Shelly's real. You saw her, but body language is so important, right? Body language is so important. You're talking about the defendant. All our body language. You see Shelly's. And then one day that week, never before. <laughs> Never, ever, 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 ever before. It's 6.30 in the morning. Doesn't call. He didn't need a timeline to create for that one, does it? Didn't want a timeline. Didn't want a record of that. He comes to see Shelly. You ever been out of that time before? No, sir. What, what, what was he carrying? It was some blue, vinyl-like... Remember I tried to... What, what? It's like this. What did you think it was? I, a tarp. I don't know what it was. And they try to gloss over it now. Hey, one thing they didn't gloss over. You remember when she was on the stand? I said, well, have you talked to them? Have you talked to their investigators? Well, yes, sir. Did they record you? Yes, sir. Can I have a copy of it? And we came back and we got a copy. And two investigators, they were worried about it then, went down and talked to her. And talked to her about her times and ran times by her and asked her if she'd ever seen anybody in this blue coat. If you ever wanted. They were worried about it. Because that's great circumstantial evidence. It kind of morphs into direct evidence. I saw him coming at 6.30. You even heard they asked one of the experts, well, could it stay on there for five years, ten years? Sure. This was days after the murder. Shelly sees him come in with a blue something. Well, 
Where did he go? He went upstairs. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Did you see it later? Thought I saw it on the chair. Can't answer every question. Miss Mixon sure didn't see it the next day. Now, actually, was there another tarp there? Well, there was a blue and silver tarp. Picture of it, too. That wasn't it, though. This was all blue. And the only other blue tarp that's in evidence, and I let it go in just so I could argue this right now, is the tarp that they showed Jelly that they got from Kmart. That's not real. This tarp, no. Looked like that. I don't know what it was. He had it bundled up. Well, lo and behold, when we find out this information, and they try to make a deal about a big deal about it, I think it makes it more pure. She's at a traffic stop or an accident or something. She tells the police officer, I, I forgot about this. You can't make it up. So they get a search warrant, and they get a search. And lo and behold, crumbling in the closet is a blue final something when you pull it out, and it's this jacket. You see how evidence of a fact and another fact that leads to fact in question? I don't know why he put it in there. I don't know why he killed his wife and son. I don't have to say why. I think he did it to protect the one he loved the most. The one he really loved the most. So he could keep his lifestyle and not be embarrassed financially. And he wanted to keep going and loving Alex. I don't know why he kept that jacket. Maybe it was Solicitor Mur Murdoch's jacket. Certainly consistent. It might have been in that truck. I think one of the family said he kept a lot of stuff in that truck. Might have been out in that something else. I don't know. But he brought it back in there and hid it. 6.30. Days after the killing. And what's inside? What, wait a minute. What's on the outside? There's a little bit. Gunshot here and there. What's on the inside? The inside. Minimum 38 particles. It got so much that Megan Fletcher finally said, you know, we get, I can't remember the term right now, we get so many, I just stopped. I'd have been there for days. Gunshot residue. Inside. Inside the rain jacket, the blue tight garment that Shelly said, I saw him carrying something like that. He got rid of the guns. He's hiding it there for some reason. Thank goodness he did. Just thank goodness for Shelly for bringing that in. That's what he disposed of the guns with. And he went out to He said he left, and before that, she thought he'd left. He came back, and he had moved to ATV. And then he said he was in another truck, and he came back, and then he left. He's disposing and hiding whatever he is doing with that evidence. Only one person knows. But that blue rain jacket, that tarp, incredible circumstantial evidence that we ask you to consider when you go back there. Is Shelly making that up? How could she make that up? How could she know they believe a blue tarp in that closet? Same closet, he went same stairs, he went up, so we went upstairs. I can't explain the tarp on the chair. Don't have to. We can't answer every question. That doesn't mean it's not reasonable doubt. 
She saw a boot tarp light. It was in that closet. It's got gunshot residue on it a few days after. Maggie and Paul were brutally murdered. And that's consistent with every reasonable hypothesis. And you know the thing he told Shelly? The night when they were talking. You get married, aren't you? You remember her saying that? You get married. If you need any money or help with it, let me know. It's incredible timing. Oh, and your job, don't you work from school? You know, I've got friends down there. I can help you on that if you need me. I was there 35.9. Can you make up the sequence of facts that lead to the conclusion he's trying to get her to say? I was there longer. I wasn't outside longer. Bunker. Blanca loved Maggie. I didn't realize that really until I talked to her just a few times. I met her years ago in a federal prison. Remember when I saw her? Remember her name? But you know, even when Blanca was quit working for him for a while, and um, you remember she had a health problems and said she saw Maggie on the road somewhere, and they kind of pulled off and just talked, <laughs> just called up. Blanca cared about Maggie. She knew her so well, she knew what she wore to bed and what she didn't wear to bed. And that kind of bothered about the clothes that were laid out. And some undergarments which she knew she didn't wear. But Blanca's test texting Maggie. Maggie's texting Blanca on June 7th. And in one of his statements, and I'm going to get to those, he said, you know, Maggie wanted to come. She wanted to come. Well, no, sir. No, she didn't. She was having work on her data stuff. He tries to say in here today, look, she was in Charleston. She was going back to that stuff. Remember the text of Blanco? Well, I left the workers there, but I guess it'll be okay. He had said come. I want you to come. She didn't want to come. We also know that from her sister Mary, who had a little regret in here today. I didn't hear much regret from over there. But you know who regretted who was real was Mary. I encouraged her to go. She didn't want to go. They got in club. You know, it's like siblings. Jane, Marshall, James. I had to get my siblings on the record. We love each other. But she had that relationship. You know, we weren't close. But then we got closer as the kids got older. I got going. We, we were close. We talked. One of her best friends. And she told her, why don't you go on over there? She regretted that. But she killed her about But that refutes his lie. Oh, she wanted to come. She wanted to come. Now so you wanted her to come. Why? Had he already planned it out? Was his world collapsing? He didn't have to. We don't have to prove he did. But he got her there. She wasn't planning on me. Blanca's got the food ready. She leaves. Let's stay on the real train for a minute. 
She goes home. She gets a call sometime that night. And this is real. What does she do when she hears? She drops the phone. Remember that? Her husband had to get on the phone. She dropped the phone, real emotion, because she cared about Maggie. That's real. And you remember she described that day when she left Alex leaving, and I put his shirt up, got his collar, helped him with his, I assume it was a blue jacket, I don't know, described the shirt. Remember, he just kind of tucked it in. And now on Alex's second interview, when he's confronted by David Owens. And they actually showed him the video of the tree. They showed him that. When did you change? When I saw you that night, you were wearing shorts. When did you change? And you remember what Alex said on that interview? When is that? When is, you sure that? When is that time was that? And then he told him the time, 7.44, whatever it was. He said, well, I guess I've changed after that. Well, those are the clothes he was wearing when he murdered Maggie and Paul. Those are the clothes. And what does Blanca tell us? That was on August 11th. She said sometime mid-August. I didn't know this. I got it. You can't make it up. Sometime mid August, he comes to see her. Do you remember that shirt when I left that day? I said, no. I mean, yes. It's a Vinnie Vine shirt. You weren't wearing a Vinnie Vine shirt. I fixed your collar. He tries to get her to tell what he was wearing. He tried to say, no, no, you weren't wearing that shirt. That Columbia shirt, you've got one of those. But guess what? I ain't seen that one since. I have not. Blanca and Shelly. That's great circumstantial. Did you ever see that shirt again? Never saw that shirt again. Ever. What shirt? You know what? I forgot about Shelly. I don't think this was mentioned. When Shelly sees Alex that night, you remember what she said about his clothes? Shorts, shirt. What you say about the shoes? Sperry type cloth shoe. You remember that? When Dave Owens and those get there, when I think I accidentally put some of the dust out on the, those aren't Sperry shoes. He's changed his shoes again. I'll get to you in a minute why that's important. The one to visit his mom, he's got Sperry type shoes. He comes back, and puts on the tennis shoes. Why? I think is she making that up? Blanca said, I've never seen the shoes before. When I got there the next morning, there was a T-shirt looked like it had been pulled down, fell on the floor. Where does he keep it? She washes her clothes. Those are clean shorts up there. This is where he kept his shorts. Did he wear these shorts much? No, he didn't wear them much, but she knows that family. She knows where the shorts are, where the shoes are. Do you remember the Sperry shoes? Yeah. Did you see those? Never saw them again. Never saw that shirt again that he was wearing in the video. Never saw it again. And when he confronted her at the house about what he was wearing, she had real feelings and told y'all about that and told law enforcement about that. Is that real? 
And why is that important? Because it goes back to credibility and common sense. Those were clean clothes that Shelly had washed. Excuse me, that Blanca had washed. And when we get there on the scene that night, you remember Laura? Miss Rutland. She's sitting in the back. David's in the front. Alex in the front. His lawyer's on the side. And you know, it's something else I don't understand. Your wife and your son have just been killed. And you're worried about having a lawyer around? And I said, well, you know, just sled agents. We need to have a lawyer around. Really? My wife and son have just been butchered, and I'm worried about having a lawyer. But they did. And that threatening, overbearing, cheating, manipulating. You know what I asked, okay? Put his hand on his shoulder. So did Laura. What are you doing? I got a heart. Is that rushing to judgment? I got a heart. I didn't rush to judgment. They were saying, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. Well, and he starts looking at his phone. You can check my phone, the alibis that he's created, that he's doing. And he says, I went and ran. I got on my knees over here. Went and ran, and I tried to take the pulse of Paul. I'd still be on the ground arguing myself. And I, I tried to turn him over. Trying to check his pulse. Really? I went to Maggie, checked her pulse. And you can't do that in the 20 seconds. He's now trying to say you can. You can't. And they've tried to change that. And he never did it. Because what did she say? What did Miss Rutland say? He was clean. He was clean. He was clean. He was clean. He washed up. Yeah, and you hear the water running in the dog video. You hear it. <laughs> He'd washed up. And this phone, you know, I tried to make a, a big deal about this phone that you saw. You do see right afterwards when we know he was down there. There's some moving on Maggie's phone. But if you, but every expert has said, just because if one phone's down here and the other one's walking, you're not going to have steps on that phone. He took Maggie's phone, the golf cart, however he got, drove back up to get those shorts and those, uh, that shirt. And yes, you can get it and manipulate it and call to see if you made a call, put it down. That's not going to record steps on that phone because it's not moving. But that doesn't mean it wasn't with his phone. Don't fall for that. That's not real. Every expert said that. Every expert said that. And doesn't that make sense? You can grab it. See, make a call, put it down. You keep walking, it's not going to record if it's there. If it's in the car, it's in the Suburban. And I'm getting to that. So what happened? And this is why I asked Ms. Rutten. And they're bringing in drug use. If he did as many pills as he said, he'd be dead. You can't take that many pills. That's your common sense. But why I ask her this, I'm asking, I want to look at every one of y'all. Tell me what he was like in that car. You've got the video. Did he appear to understand you? Yes, sir. Were his answers timely? Yes, sir. Were they subject matter appropriately? Yes. Do you understand him? He can understand you. Look, he's thinking. He's opening the door. What's he in his right mind? 
Of course he was. And why is that so important? He says he didn't go down there. Is that enough? Yes. With everything else, that's enough. I never went down there. He's in his right mind. I never went down there, Dave. I never went down there, Lord. I never went down there after supper. I stayed up. I took a nap. He goes from taking a nap from 6-7 the next time they met, 6-10. I took a nap. August 15th. You sure you're down there? All right, they're taking a nap. I took a nap. I never went down there. Never, ever, ever. You think he would have taken the stand and said, you know, I was down there. Y'all, if that video hadn't come out on that button. Well, no. Now, under Mr. Waters' cross-examination, I lied. Why'd you lie? I wrote it down. I'm still not clear. I was, had paranoid thoughts. Usually I can take a deep breath and get through it. But I couldn't, so I just, I just lied. Once I lied, I continued to lie. And he continued and continued and continued until 627 days later when he took the stand the first time he'd ever told anybody. Anybody. He told his family. He told his friends. He told everybody. And they believed him. I wasn't down there. Why is that so critical? That's the time of death. That's when it happened. That's what the records show. That's when the conversation, yes, it is important. Paul, who used his phone all the time, Paul is in a conversation about the dogs, interacting, well, send me the picture. He does. And then it stops. Yes, that's what it happened. And then Maggie's phone, a little bit text. She reads that text. I think she went to her car. Y'all decide. Nobody knows. One person knows. She goes to her car. And she's got some rings there she's putting back on. I think she's got two rings there, and she's putting on another in the car. Maybe they've been working in the kennels. There's one shooter. There's only one shooter. And she hears that shot and she comes back around. She hears the shot. She reads the last text. Y'all will have it in there. I think she opens the thing about Swister Murdoch. He doesn't. And then you don't see anything else. You don't see anything else on the phone. So is that common sense? Yeah, that's when they were gone. Yes. Yes. When they interact so much. Yes. That's common sense. And that's why it's so important. You want to help law enforcement? You're in law enforcement? I was down there. Y'all know what? I was down there. I didn't take that nap as long as I did. Did you hear anything? Why would you not give that information? Okay, then the tent. With his lawyer, Mr. Griffin. In the car. Did you go down there? No. Look at him. Is he coherent? Is he under the influence of anything? Is he withdrawing? No. I want to help y'all. I want to help you. And then on the 15th, here's this video. Here's you in the tree. Now, Rogan says he thought he heard you down there earlier. Well, I don't think so. Why not say it then? Think about it. Well, it's just Rogan's word. Does that make any sense? Just Rogan's word. No, sir, I can handle that. He made a mistake, like Shelly did. Like Mark and clothes. No, sir. I can handle that, though. But when the video comes out, he's stuck. He's stuck. I'm going to try to wrap up. 
<laughs> Yesterday morning at 2.53 in the morning, I don't sleep much during trials, but I kind of woke up. And what he did when he took the stand was corroborated that he's a liar. He corroborated the fact he doesn't tell the truth. The one thing that was more important than anything. And you know, they're putting these uh, law enforcement on trial, talking about blood evidence, uh, talking about other things that were presented to the grand jury, which you... That blood evidence was investigated, and the state didn't offer it. That's what you do in your prosecution. Didn't try to offer it. Now they're trying to put us on trial for doing our job. Think about that. Blame everybody else. Look, they looked into this, and it didn't turn out to be. So now we're going to blame them. We didn't try to present it. Isn't that how long? They're now jamming us for doing our job. Jamming us for doing our job. All the evidence of the guns. And I'm going to get that in a minute. The timeline, the incredible timeline. His lies. All of that. The gunshot residue. All of that's presented. And do we make mistakes? Yes. And that happens in life. But you don't lie and misremember being at the scene of a murder when you said you weren't even there or being at the scene where your family was brutally murdered. You don't lie about that. That's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. This is the state of South Carolina versus Richard Alexander Murdoch, not the state versus David Owens, not versus Sled. And I will tell you something. Sled, Walterboro, Laura Ruttons working with David Owens. Sled starts working with the FBI, they're working together. This is, think about it. Rush to judgment, they gave that man every benefit of the doubt. Oh, what are y'all doing? How's it going? You remember that third interview when he was, uh, David Owens said, well, and I submit to you, they're taking those interviews where he's trying to come find out what they've got on him. Well, why is this thing looking? How's this thing looking? Well, we've got some shell cases. By Maggie's body, out over there where y'all shot in the range, and some shots out there by the side of the house, the shell casings, they all were came from the same gun. All cylindered in the same gun. You think if they didn't, they could find an expert or a few that they would have? And Alex says, oh really? So the gun, the gun was there? You see his reaction? They all came from the same gun on Maggie. Now the other one, Mr. Griffin tried to argue, Paul Greer, yeah, it could have come from that shotgun. Don't know. Is that credible evidence? But it could have. I'm not saying it did or did, but it certainly could have. He's got that gun. He's got Maggie's blood on it. Don't know if he used that or not. But I know the assault rifle is missing. And Will Loving comes from a fine family in, in Columbia, I can tell you that. Says we were down here not in March. It was more like May or April or May. We were shooting his gun on the side of the house. And no shell casings. That's where they found them. And lo and behold, the shell casing matched the shell casings around Maggie. They were all silver in the same gun. They came out of the same gun. They've been in the same gun. Yes, Mr. Waters is right. That's a family-owned gun. And is that incredible circumstantial and direct evidence? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. It is. That's powerful. You can feel it like the rain. The murderers come in. There'll be a gun there. We'll just use their gun. Does that make any sense? 
Y'all too young. You ever watch Columbo? When I first looked at this case, this is an episode of Columbo, except this is real. And you get to see one of my heroes, the detective, didn't always look that good, wasn't all that. But he, he got to see the crime, and then you got to see him figure it out, and the mistakes they made. And that's what happened here. <laughs> he killed him. He thought he could get a timeline, but it got him. Within 20 seconds, he's texting Maggie on that phone when he's passing the location of her phone. Is it common sense? He threw that phone out, called her, and threw it. Threw it, and the orientation didn't go on. They said, if you pick it up, yes. And we had somebody come in here. You throw it, you throw it rough, and it doesn't come on. And one of the chances is anything else. He'd almost had to bump into him. Almost had to bump into him. And you take this new story. I was down there till 8.50, whatever. Go up, take a quick nap, come back. He didn't hear the shots. Just happens to come back. And common sense, don't, don't leave it with you. Take it back there with you. I'm down there now. My wife told me this. I'm down there under this new story. And the deal was to come talk. Go see my mama at 9.30. And you're right down there. You've just seen them now. Well, you said before you hadn't even seen them. Don't forget that. And you go up to the house, why don't you say, hey, Max, I'm going I'm to go see Mom real quick. Just a few minutes later. No. You go up there. You take a quick nap. You know what? I'm going to try to call them. Let them know I'm going down. Does that make any sense? And then when you get to the why, you'll see the light. When y'all went out there yesterday, those trees are much lower. Go back in and look at the way it was. And I think even Buster said when you get down there, if the light's on, you can see. Why don't you just go right over there? Hey, I ain't going down there. No? Doesn't hear anything, doesn't do anything, he just takes off. He just takes off. Does that make any sense? We've proved that nobody else could. With that timeline. Does it matter when he's rushing back? Yeah. I, I doubt he's ever killed two people before. So he's not thinking, he's frantic. Puts the wrong two shells in the gun. Coming back, he's got Maggie's phone. It had been sitting there. That's why the steps weren't on there. He's moving. He gets it. I can't take this phone with me. He's a lawyer. So he tosses it out. That's the only thing that makes sense. And what did he say about Paul's phone? When he went up there, you know, I started to get, I didn't, I didn't know I got it. I don't, and then it kind of just popped out too. Does that make any sense? You've got to evaluate everything. You can't believe somebody's credible one thing. How can you believe them on the ultimate issue when they said they didn't? When the only thing they corroborated for you throughout the investigation, throughout this trial, and throughout Mr. Waters' cross-examination is he's a liar. And that's all you can judge people on. The three witnesses that were beautiful, that were uncontroverted, and one was Paul. He didn't testify to you up on the stand, but he testified through Dr. Raymer. And he testified through his time. And here's so beautiful of evidence. It's so pure. <laughs> he didn't know he took that video. That's why he said he wasn't down here. And this is beyond all that. We respectfully submit him. Paul knew. Dad, I got some insurance. I got some insurance. Not the kind of insurance you've made money off of. An insurance some clients you gave back and some you didn't. I've got some insurance. 
on you. I don't know why you killed me. I've made some mistakes. You heard a lot of good things about Paul too. I know I put your life open, your life, your fake life, with this boat case. Your finances are coming out. I know that. But if you go lie and say you weren't down here, I got you. I don't know when it'll come out. Maybe you'll go ahead and lie. But this is going to come out. Paul had that insurance on him. And maybe that's why he was worried about that phone. And you can't make that up. Because you remember when I asked David Owens, does anybody else in the world, in the world, know that that video was out there except Paul? No, sir. And that's incredible evidence. And it did sit there until law enforcement, working together, the states, the locals, sled, everybody, got it out. And that's great law enforcement. Thank you. Yes, and that's when the case changed. Along with all the other evidence. Matthew testified to him. He shot me here. He shot me here. And look at all the shell cases around me. Y'all look at them. They're the same ones that Will Loving shot with Paul. They're the same ones that have been shot down there. Yeah. It came out of the same gun. That's great direct insurance. And finally, finally, and my, my daughter-in-law, Sally, and my Aunt Cece still, still calls my dad, Jack, this. My daughter-in-law been married about three months, <coughs> one of the happiest days of my life, because they were happy. They were watching that kennel video. She and her dog, Tater. And when Bubba started to bark, that's what my aunt calls them, dead Bubba, Tater bark. And Sally said, isn't it something that your best witness in here are the dogs? You know, some people say they got a sixth cent. You think Bubba knew? You think Bubba knew something? You got Alex to say something. Bubba! Thank God for Bubba. DNA, and that DNA when people live together, you'll have it all over your shirt. That's not it. But DNA, in this case, that dog negates all. Thank you, Bubba. And guess where Bubba is now? Bubba's with Blanca. Bubba's with Blanca. You can't make that up. And that puts him down there. And that's the lie he told and told and told. I went down there. Why aren't y'all doing something, law enforcement? Why aren't you telling us you were down there? Why aren't you telling us you were down there? If he tried to respond to the phone, as Mr. Griffin said, it would show that he was going to Malmita. He had to get rid of that phone. He had to get rid of it there. Finally, it's a book your greatest power. My dad gave it to me when I was young. He said, read it. Your greatest power. You know what it is? Your greatest power is your power to choose. Choice. We've all got it. We're born with it. We use it every day. 
We use it when we treat people, whether we say, hey, where we're nice, whether we forgive people. We make good decisions, we make bad decisions. But what my dad always told me, don't blame anybody else. If you make a good choice, that's good. Don't get too cocky. Be humble, but that's good. But if you make a bad choice, you're responsible for it. The consequences. It's your greatest power. And for whatever was going on in his mind, his world's collapsing. It's coming down. All these worlds coming down financially. He's confronted that day by somebody's law firm. Where's this check? He's got another hearing coming up. It's a motive. Don't have to have it. But yes, yeah, there. And is this rational? Did he say that? Is that rational? Was it rational to be on the side of the road and claim your shot? And when you're in the ambulance, and go watch this if you need to, and you're talking to the officer in the ambulance, and you say, What happened? Oh, by the way, he wanted to kill himself. He called 911. He called 911. When he told the officer in the ambulance, well, What happened? Well, some guy shot me. He even did a sketch. He faked the sketch. But what did he tell the guy in the ambulance? It sounded like a shot. He's trying. His world, and he says there in that last interview of Mr. Har the call-in interview, Mr. Harfootin and Mr. Griffin, what you got in there, Ryan? Ryan, I'm sorry, I lied about everything. I was under a lot of pressure. I had a lot going on. Really, your wife and your son were murdered three months ago, and now you're. This is the real Alex. Well, my world's coming down. My world, Alex's world, is coming down. Been confronted by his law partners. Losing his job. Now it's me. My world's being affected. Not about that, but now. And I'm sorry I lied. I've lied about everything. Alex, Richard Alexander Murdahl loved. I think he loved me. I think he loved Paul. But you know who he loved more than that? You know who he loved more than that? And who he's going to make sure that that life, wanted to make sure that life, he loved Alex. And he exercised his greatest power of choice to make sure that life continued or try. And it couldn't. And now, ladies and gentlemen, after his honor charges you, you're going to go back there and exercise your greatest power. Based on the evidence you've heard, the evidence you haven't heard, the credibility, the believability of the witnesses, and especially of Richard Alexander Murdoch. He was lied and lied and lied and lied. And it's been okay. And he got you through. It stops here. We, we respectfully request it stops here today. No, it's not okay. And we're going to exercise our greatest power to find you guilty of killing Maggie and Paul. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you've now heard the evidence and you have heard the closing arguments. Uh, next up will be jury charge and then your deliberations. Uh, we're at lunchtime. We're going to take a break for one hour and 15 minutes for lunch and you'll come back. I'll charge you on the law then you will deliberate. Please do not discuss the case.
Seated. Uh, when we resume, I intend to go directly into um, charging the jury. Uh, when I'm charging the jury, no one comes, no one leaves. Uh, before we break for lunch, are there any matters to discuss regarding the jury charge? I, I think the state emailed a revised charge on the the other pending charges, which we did not have any objection to. I don't know if Your Honor. We received it and incorporated that in, into the charge with correcting a typo here, typo there. Any, we, we don't have any additional charges or any objections. Without addition, we don't have any either. All right. We'll be in recess for an hour and 15 minutes. All right.
You will bring the jury. Thank you, Madam Forelady and members of the jury. You have heard the testimony, received the evidence, and heard the arguments of the state and the defendant. I will now explain to you the law that applies to this case. Under the Constitution and laws of South Carolina, you are the finders of the facts in this case. I do not have the right to pass upon the facts or to even express any opinion that I might have as to them because this is a matter solely for you, the jury, to determine. As jurors, then, it is your duty to determine the effect, the value, and the weight of the evidence presented during this trial. As a trial judge, it is my responsibility to preside over the trial of the case, and I have the duty to rule upon or pass upon the admissibility of the evidence offered during the trial. You are to consider only the testimony which has been presented from this witness stand, along with other exhibits that and evidence presented during the trial. Any other evidence or exhibits which have been made a part of the record you may consider, along with any stipulations made by counsel. I have the additional duty to charge you the law applicable to this case. And as the presiding judge, I am the sole judge of the law. It is your duty as jurors to accept and apply the law as I now state it to you, then to deliberate in an effort to reach your verdict. And finally, I charge you in this regard that you should not be concerned with what you think the law ought to be, but what I charge you that the law is. You are also the judges the sole judges of the credibility, that is the believability, 
of the witnesses who have testified and of the evidence offered. In considering credibility, you may take into consideration many things, such as the demeanor or manner of testifying, whether the, the witness had reason to be biased or prejudiced, and whether the testimony was contradicted on the one hand or supported and corroborated on the other hand. You may believe a small portion of a witness's testimony and disregard the larger or vice versa. All these things you will consider bearing in mind that you should give the defendant the benefit of any reasonable doubt. It becomes your duty as jurors to analyze and to evaluate the evidence and determine that evidence which convinces you of its truth. There are two types of evidence which are generally presented during a trial direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence directly proves the existence of a fact and does not require deduction. Circumstantial evidence is proof of a chain of facts and circumstances indicating the existence of a fact. Crimes may be proven by direct evidence or circumstantial evidence. The law makes no distinction between the weight or value to be given either direct evidence or circumstantial evidence. However, to the extent the state relies on circumstantial evidence, the circumstances must be consistent with each other and when taken together, point conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. If these circumstances merely portray the defendant's behavior as suspicious, the proof has failed. The state has the burden of proving the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This burden rests with the state regardless of whether the state relies on direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, or some combination of the two. The rules of evidence ordinarily do not permit witnesses to testify to opinions or conclusions. An exception to this rule exists for witnesses we call expert witnesses. An expert witness is a witness who by education and experience has become expert in some art, science, profession, or calling, and may state an opinion as to relevant and material matter in which the witness claims to be an expert, and may also state the reasons for the opinion. You should consider any expert opinion received in evidence, and like any other evidence, give it the weight you think it deserves. If you decide that the opinion of an expert is not based on sufficient education and experience, or if you conclude that the reasons given in support of the opinion are not sound, 
or that the opinion is outweighed by other evidence, you may then disregard the opinion entirely. An expert witness's testimony is to be given no greater weight than that of any other witness, simply because the witness is an expert. Further, you are not required to accept an expert's opinion, even though it is not contradicted. In regard to evidence of other crimes and evidence of alleged bad acts on other occasions, this evidence is limited to consideration by you as it relates to the motive of the defendant for the offenses charged in this case. This evidence cannot be used for any other purpose. This type of evidence must not be considered in any other fashion. In particular, the South Carolina Rules of Evidence provide that evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show action in conformity therewith. Put another way, evidence of other crimes or bad acts cannot be, show, show, cannot be used to show that the defendant is a bad person and therefore is more likely to have committed the crime for which he is accused. You may not consider evidence of other crimes and bad acts for this purpose or for any other purpose other than it as it relates to the motive of the defendant. In addition, while you may have heard that other crimes and bad acts of the defendant have resulted in other charges or indictments not before you, the fact that the defendant was arrested, charged, and indicted in these matters is not evidence and cannot be considered by you as evidence of guilt in this case nor do these indictments create any presumption of guilt. As to any other pending charges, as is the case here, the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by the state in a court of law. The function of the jury is to determine whether a defendant is guilty or not guilty, and the consequences of a conviction in this or other pending matters is of no aid in determining whether the defendant committed the offense. You should not consider nor speculate about sentencing consequences for this or any other crimes, as those issues are not before you. The fact that the defendant was arrested, charged, and indicted in this case is not evidence and cannot be considered by you as evidence of guilt, nor does it create any presumption or inference of guilt. The indictments are simply the formal written instruments which contain the charges made against the defendant. The indictments are the formal documents by which this case is brought into this court. 
the defendant Richard Alexander Murdoch has pled not guilty to the indictments. And that plea puts the burden on the state to prove the defendant guilty. A person charged with committing a criminal offense in South Carolina is never required to prove himself innocent. I charge you that it is an important rule of the law that the defendant in a criminal trial, no matter what the seriousness of the charge may be, will always be presumed to be innocent of the crime for which the indictment was issued unless guilt has been proven by evidence satisfying you of that guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. This presumption of innocence does not end when you begin your deliberations, but it accompanies the defendant throughout the trial until you reach a verdict of guilt based on evidence satisfying you of that guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The presumption of innocence is like a robe of righteousness placed about the shoulders of the defendant, which remains with the defendant until it has been stripped from the defendant by evidence satisfying you of that guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The presumption of innocence is not a mere legal theory. It's not just a legal phrase. It is a substantial right to which every defendant is entitled, unless you, the jury, are satisfied from the evidence of the guilt of the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. The state must prove the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So what is a reasonable doubt in the law? A reasonable doubt is a doubt which makes an honest, reasonable, sincere, and conscientious juror hesitate to act. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt must therefore be proof of such a convincing character that a reasonable person would not hesitate to rely and act upon it in the most important of her, his or her own affairs. Proof beyond the reasonable doubt can also be described as proof that leaves you firmly convinced of the guilt of the defendant. Now, there are very few things in this world that we know with absolute certainty. And in criminal cases, the law does not require proof that overcomes every possible doubt. If based on your consideration of the evidence, you are firmly convinced that the defendant is guilty of a crime charge, you must then find him guilty. If, on the other hand, you think there's a real possibility that he is not guilty, you must then give him the benefit of the doubt and find him not guilty. The indictments in this case allege four separate offenses against the defendant. The indictments are murder of Margaret Maddie, Maggie Murdoch, Murdoch, murder of Paul Murdoch, possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime involving the murder of 
Margaret Maggie Murdoch, and possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime involving the murder of Paul Murdoch. Each indictment charges a separate and distinct offense. You must decide each indictment separately on the evidence and the law applicable to it, uninfluenced by your decision as to any other indictment. The defendant may be convicted or acquitted on any or all of the offenses charged. You will be asked to write a separate verdict of guilty or not guilty for each indictment. The defendant Richard Alexander Murdaugh is charged with the murder of, Mag of Margaret Murdaugh and Paul Murdoch. The state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant killed Margaret Murdoch and Paul Murdoch with malice aforethought. Malice is hatred, ill will, or hostility towards another person. It is the intentional doing of a wrongful act without just cause or excuse and with an intent to inflict an injury or under the circumstances that the law will infer an evil intent. Malice of forethought does not require that malice exists for any particular time before the act is committed but malice must exist in the mind of the defendant just before and at the time the act is committed. Therefore, there must be a combination of the previous evil intent and the act. Malice aforethought may be expressed or inferred. These terms expressed and inferred do not mean different kinds of malice, but merely the manner in which malice may be shown to exist. That is, either by direct evidence or by inference from the facts and circumstances which are proven. Express malice is shown when a person speaks words which express hatred or ill will for another, or when the person prepared beforehand to do the act which was later accomplished. For example, lying in wait for a person or any other acts of preparation going to show that the deed was within the mind of the defendant would be expressed malice. Malice may be inferred from conduct showing a total disregard for human life. The defendant is also charged with possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Two counts. The state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was in possession of a firearm during the commission of a violent crime. A firearm means any weapon which will is designed to or may readily be converted to expel a projectile. In order to find the defendant guilty of possession of a weapon during the commission 
of a violent crime, you must first find the defendant guilty of committing a violent crime. Murder is a violent crime. The state must prove beyond the reasonable doubt that the weapon furthered, advanced, or helped in the commission of the crime. While the arguments of counsel are a beneficial part of every trial, you should remember that the statements made by counsel are not evidence. In presenting their arguments, counsel often refer or, has refer or have referred to the evidence. However, you should base your verdict on the evidence as you remember it. If there are any conflicts between the recollection of counsel about the evidence and your own recollection, you should rely on your own understanding of the evidence. You must decide whether the state has met its burden of proof beyond the reasonable doubts based solely on the evidence presented in this courtroom. As you were instructed that at the start of the trial, you're not to permit it, you're not permitted to conduct any independent research about this case. The facts of the case, the evidence presented in the case, or the people or organizations involved in any way in the case. Do not try to find any information from any source outside the courtroom, however reliable that source may seem to be. Do not look at dictionaries or other reference materials. Search the internet, websites, or blogs, or use any other electronic tools to get information about this case or help you make a decision. You may not use computers, telephones, cell phones, smartphones, tablets, the internet, or other tools of technology with communication capabilities at any time during your deliberations, except only as provided by the court to review the digital evidence in this case. If your deliberations necessitate an overnight break, you may use these devices as necessary, but you may not use them to communicate with anyone about the case until the case is over. This means that you must not use phone calls, video calls, emails, text messages, instant messages, blogs, chat rooms, websites, or any social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Reddit, and Discord to send or receive any information about this case. This includes information about a party, a witness, an attorney, a court officer, or your fellow jurors. News accounts about the case, research on any topic raised, or even any topics you may think would be helpful in deciding the case, or any testimony presented by any witness you may not investigate. 
During your deliberations, do not read, listen to, or watch any news reports about this case. This includes anything that, you, that may be in the newspapers or in the internet, radio, or television. You must not consider anything you may have read or heard about the case outside of a courtroom, whether before or during the trial. Information on television, radio, internet, or from other sources may be wrong or incomplete. In our judicial system, it is important that you are not influenced by anything or anyone outside of this courtroom. If your deliberations necessitate an overnight break, even though you may use electronic devices as necessary for purposes unrelated to this trial, I must urge you to minimize your use of such devices. Many internet browsers, smartphone apps, and social media services, as well as traditional media like television and radio, will provide information and news that you do not seek with little or no prompting. It is a strong possibility that information about this case may be thrust upon you every time you use an electronic device. You must therefore use these devices only as absolutely necessary. You must ignore and avoid uninvited information about this case. No matter for lady and members of the jury, I am required to charge you the law as I have done through these instructions now I'm being given to help guide you to a just and lawful verdict. Whether some of these instructions apply will depend upon what you find to be the facts. The fact that I have instructed you on various subjects must not be considered as indicating an opinion of this court as to what you should find to be the facts or what your verdict should be. In conclusion, now you've been chosen and sworn to give the parties a fair and impartial trial. When you have done so, you will have completed your oath and no one will have a right to criticize your verdict. You must not be swayed or influenced by opinions or expressions of opinion you may have heard outside of the courtroom, but rather should base your verdict solely on the testimony of the sworn witnesses who took the stand, the exhibits received into evidence, and the law which I have stated. You should not be swayed by caprice, passion, prejudice, or improper sympathy for or against anyone. Remember, you have no friends to reward or enemies to punish, and all parties are entitled to a fair and impartial trial. It is your duty as jurors to consult with one another and to deliberate in an effort to reach an agreement. 
Each of you must decide this case for yourself, but only after impartial consideration of all of the evidence with your fellow jurors. In the course of your deliberations, do not hesitate to re-examine your own views and change your opinion if you become convinced it is erroneous. However, do not surrender your honest conviction as to the weight or effect of the evidence solely because of the opinion of your fellow jurors or for the mere purpose of returning a verdict. As I stated earlier, you are the judges, judges of the facts. Your verdict must represent the considered judgment of each juror. In other words, your verdict must be unanimous. Now, you may have noticed that I have read these instructions. I do so to give you the law as accurately as possible. I will give you a copy of these instructions to have in the jury room. You may refer to these instructions to assist you in your deliberations. You must consider the instructions as a whole and not follow some and ignore others. And Madam Forelady, it would be your duty to preside over the deliberations of the jury. If during your deliberations you should desire to communicate with the court, please reduce your message or question to writing signed by your foreperson and the foreperson only. Do not address any questions to anyone other than the court and reduce it to writing and pass it to the bailiff signed by the foreperson and the foreperson only. It will then be brought to my attention. I will then respond as promptly as possible either in writing or by having you return to the courtroom. I caution you, however, with regard to any message or question you might send, that you should never state your or specify your numerical division at the time. Now, you've heard the testimony and you have heard the law. Whatever your verdict, Madam Forelady, you will indicate the verdict on the back of each indictment and then sign and date your verdict. You will have these four indictments and on the back of each indict indictment is a place for verdict and each one, as to each one you write your verdict either not guilty or guilty then sign and date the verdict. You're not authorized to write the verdict until all of you have agreed on the verdict. Now, in just a minute, I will send you to the, lib to the jury room. But prior to doing so, I want to ensure that from the 12 jurors we have remaining, if there is any reason that any one of you cannot continue deliberating, please let me know at this time. We have 13 jurors. Only 12 can deliberate. 
So out of the first 12 jurors now on the panel, if, if, there, if there are any reasons why you cannot continue, please let me know at this time before I excuse the alternate. A show of hands as to anyone who cannot continue deliberating. All, right. All jurors then seem to be uh, in good shape and good to go. So when the jurors, when the jury leaves the courtroom, the alternate will remain. And the alternate is. I will send you to the jury room, all of you, uh, except for the alternate. But do not begin deliberations until you have received a copy of this jury charge the indictments, and the exhibits. Once you receive these things, that will be your signal to begin your deliberations. Once you begin deliberations, you will deliberate until you have reached a verdict, at which time you will knock on the door, advise the bailiff, and we will bring you out to receive your verdict. So if all of you will now go to the jury room except for the alternate juror number 741 who will remain with us while the others go to the jury room. Stated for the record, whatever it is. All right, what about it? And if we um, if we could perhaps hold the alternate in the case there's a problem with the 12, and we have to insert the alternate during the deliberations. But yes. No, the state occurs with that, Your the statute says alternate must be excused once the jury begins deliberating. Uh, and that's always a risk that, that is taken. So with the consent of the parties, if that's what the parties want, um, uh, Mr. Mr. Murdoch. Yes, sir. Do you want me to hold the alternate in the event something happens to any other juror? Yes, sir. All right. Very good. So, Madam, you will not be dismissed. You will remain uh, as a member of the panel while the jury uh, jurors are deliberating, but will um, need to be um, taken someplace separately from the, from the panel to ensure that you do not talk with anyone or communicate with anyone. And we'll figure all that in, out in a few minutes. But uh, aside from that, Aside from that, we, if you all will review the um, exhibits with the court reporter and, and the bailiff, you can take the charge and the indictments in, and the jury may begin deliberating. Okay, thank you for reminding me on that. Any additions or exceptions to the charge? <coughs> Voluntary intoxication, Your Honor? Yeah. Um, 
voluntary intoxication was not charged. It was not raised. I sided with um, the fact that it was not raised as a defense and would not be appropriate to charge. Okay. Why is everyone standing? <laughs> uh, so, um, let's see, is there a separate room the alternate can go to for the time being? For the time being. That's for the time being. Seven forty-one. If you will um, follow uh, court officer to a place. Yes, sir. Your Honor, may I approach with uh, Mr. Waters or something to come up?
All right, you may take them all in along with the, uh, uh, put this on top. And we, yes, sir. All right, we'll be in recess waiting for the verdict.